right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. We've got uh, four of the five. Mr. TC is not with us today, but Neil, young Icarito, is not so young Icarito anymore, is uh, back down south at the Kill House. Welcome. Uh, thank you. It's great to be back with you guys. DJ Pi is here. Greetings. Hello. Big Randy is here. His computer's still updating, so he's not going to go first. We're in a complete stall mode right now, four-corner offense, trying to get my computer ready. And I also want to say TC is always with us in spirit, though. Exactly. This is true. Today's episode, <laughs> we are going to cover um, some of, I don't want to say our favorite collapses in golf history. It seems a little a little morbid, I guess, if you will. We requested that people send in ideas for topics they want to hear us dive into. And this was one of the suggested ones, which is uh, kind of going one by one. And uh, diving into some of the some of the great golf collapses in history, and we've each got a separate topic, and we're gonna we're gonna go hard on it. If if I could add some more specificity to that, we're talking about professional golf collapses, so none of Neil's, well, <laughs> you know, none of Neil's collapses will be touched on here, and, and as I, far as I know. Thank you for clarifying that as well. I wanted everybody to go around and define what is a collapse, what is the worst collapse. Why don't you start? Well, I kind of have it in two categories. You have the you know, people careening down the leaderboard. So like the most stroke lead and then they just collapse on the final day. So just kind of volume collapse. And then I think there's a separate category. Some hit both, but it's heartbreaks, right? It, it, it all happens all at once at the very end or it happens to somebody where it's just say it ain't so kind of thing. So I kind of went back and forth between the two of those uh, and tried to find one or two that met both criteria. Well, I know that we're, uh, yours is somewhat of a surprise. Which category does it fall into? It falls more into the first, just a, you know. Slow bleed. Yeah, yeah just it, it's kind of over before it starts, but has the heartbreak aspect to it as well. So as a kind of a, uh, a little tangential side thing. Sure. And I think the goal of this is also, it's definitely not to laugh at anyone. Uh, well, I don't want to speak for everyone. I don't know about that. Okay. <laughs> it's more, more so to add some context around some of these. I, uh, the one I'll be doing, which I'm, I'm going to be going last, is Greg Norman's collapse at the 96 Masters, which may be the most obvious one. But it in you know 30 minutes of researching yesterday, I was like, whoa, there is way more to this than I would have thought. A lot more context. A lot of stuff I'd never heard before. So that's kind of the goal is to bring a lot of this stuff into one place and uh, Hopefully, I'm gonna. I'm ready to learn from you guys, and hopefully, people at home learn something along the way. One other thing I'd add, I think there's a personal element to it as well. Both of them. So I'll, I'll date mine a little bit. I watched them, right? So it was like, oh my god, like it kind of struck me. It was a paradigm shift for a couple of guys where you're like, man, that is, that's a tough scene. So I, and it, it's and, all and relative, may, but may, it may not be personal for you guys, right? Because there's a lot, you know, from the past where. Yeah, I'm, I'm delving pretty deep back into the archives, but one thing. I think mine speaks to, and, and I'm guessing your guys' does too. And I know I try to say this whenever, you know, we have a quote unquote choke go down is that you have to play really well in order to be able to choke. And I think we can maybe preface some of these with, uh, I'm guessing everybody that we're talking about here was in the lead of a big ass golf tournament at, at some point. And mm-hmm. I always, I always <laughs> kind of laugh at that a little bit when people are like, Oh my God, like they don't have what it takes. They're such chokers. Those guys suck. Like man, they, what about the guy who like went seventy five, seventy four, and like wasn't even close to sniffing making the cut? Like what? 
that that said, guy sucks. Yeah, like <laughs> that guy sucks. That said, I think there is something to what you just said though. Of that he doesn't have what it takes. Like we will get to some Norman stuff that I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> dude. Like you didn't. Like I wanted to just believe. Like he's just kind of on the ed- he he was on the edge of bad luck in a lot of s- scenarios. But also like, dude, th- this the writing was on the wall here. Like some of the stories from that Saturday night are. We'll get to it. How about yeah. that? I guess what you know. Listen, it's it's a complicated topic, as as everything is. Before we get rolling any further, we've talked. Uh, you've heard us talk quite a bit about Callaway's irons. A couple of has, of us have the Apex. Some have the Apex Pros. I'm an X Forged guy. What do you guys play? What's, well, I've been playing the Killhouse Rental set yeah. for the past three months, which was Pros, which I was I was hitting pretty well. I've got the uh, um, my set back, which is the Apex. So it's going to be a head to head battle here over the next month or two to see which one I'm going to go with for the long term. We'll find out. I'm, I'm Apex as well. We'll find out who the true Apex Predator yeah. is. Yeah, we will. <laughs> <laughs> Big guy. Well, it, the truthful answer is I'm, as the uh, name would suggest, I'm actually gaming the Rogue Pros right now. So I'm I'm a little rogue here in the Apex <laughs> You're going discussion. Rogue. Yeah. Randy's a big comfort guy. You know, he finds something he likes, he sticks with it for the long term. That's exactly right. Um, the irons are great. They go a long way. They give you an incredible sense of control over your shots. But this year, Callaway launched the Maverick family of irons, uh, and they're giving you a chance to win a set of Maverick Pros on their Instagram account. So if you've seen the uh, a set of the Maverick Pros, you might have seen them during the match. One of the quarterbacks was using uh, a set of Callaway clubs. I, and if it was the other one, I don't think that we would be highlighting that. If, if, you, if <laughs> yeah. you can't figure out who the quarterback is we're talking about. He's they, comfortable wearing the, the Maverick orange. Yeah. I would say. <laughs> if you had to, you know, needed some ID. And now Callaway is giving you a chance to win a set of those Maverick irons. So go to their Instagram account. Check out the post from Thursday, May 28th. Follow the post instructions to enter your chance to win a brand new set. Contest ends this Sunday, June 7th. Uh, it's a chance at a set of Callaway Maverick Pro irons on Instagram. Check it out on Callaway's Instagram and enter before Sunday. Randy, can we get an update on your computer? Huge news, guys. My uh, <laughs> Catalina 10.5.4 update has completed. I am online. I am ready to go. Why didn't you just hit remind me tomorrow? He is logged on. I've been doing that for for the last <laughs> probably three years. Probably <laughs> yeah. two years well, straight every day. Why'd you pick today? Well, I did it. I started it's a this Tuesday, morning. Man. It's I started, a work day. I started this morning. I don't know. <laughs> Who could say? All I right. thought it was going to be quick. Well, no, he know. starts this morning, then he shuts his computer so it doesn't even update. And then he opens it back up when he gets here. That's ah. exactly what happened. But they should tell you how long these things are going to take. I don't, who knows? Well, you know what I have a frustration with is when it says, like, you've got 15 minutes left, but it just kind of, like, hangs out on 15 minutes for 15 minutes. And then it's like, totally. well, just don't tell me that. Don't do not do that. What's the deal with airplane food, too? You know? <laughs> are people shaving in there? <laughs> <laughs> that one went over my head. I don't know the airplane food one. This is a Seinfeld thing. It's just okay. kind of, you know, everyday problems. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. it, sorry, to, we digress. But I'm, Randy, I'm glad. Thank you. Mission accomplished. I'm glad you're back. Will you, thank you. DJ Pi, I believe you're first up. Why don't you uh, take us through your great collapse? Happily. Thank you all for being here today. I, I always like to start with a quote, you know, to, to kind of set the tone, what we're going to be talking about. And today that comes from Arthur Daly, uh, famed sports writer of the New York Times. Uh, who called today's epic failure to protect this lead, quote, the equivalent of galloping toward the wrong end zone, end quote. I, I would say that... Leon Lett? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good pull. Didn't he do that? No, he was going the, no, right, was going way. the right way. But oh, he just celebrated it? too early. Oh, gotcha. But there was, was somebody oh, that was the Vikings guy. Uh, I forget who it was. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You know, I, I think that when you're, <laughs> when you're Googling biggest... Uh, collapses in golf history, as you know, I may or may not have. Jim before, Marshall before was, this podcast. 
exactly. This is probably going to be the one that shows up as number one. And, and you know, I, I know sometimes we like to avoid the most obvious ones, but I, I feel like it happened so long ago. There's probably a lot of people listening to this who haven't heard the full story, including myself, really. I, I delved into it a bit during the Billy Casper Most Underrated Golfers of All Time podcast. But, uh, of course, we're going to be talking today about the 1966 United States Open uh, and Mr. Arnold, Mr. Palmer, who the definition of a tough scene. It's the toughest scene possibly we've ever seen in professional golf. Where is this? Is this great question at the Olympic Club, San Francisco? Neil, shout out to your former life. Shout out to Tour Sauce season what three? I think we stopped by there for the par uh, three for yeah. the par three course. This was, of course, on the contested on the late course. This was the second U.S. Open. Just, just let me set the table with some context please, here. Please, please. <laughs> you can hear the knives clanging <laughs> as, as we're setting the table. Uh, this was the second U.S. Open held at the Olympic Club. Of course, the first one in 1955 won by um, Johnny Miller. Nope, that's not right. That's Mr. Not right. Hogan. <laughs> Mr. Hogan's a very close guess. All about Mr. as close as you can possibly Mr. get. Mr. Venturi? No. This is Hogan. The point that no, is that nobody remembers who won this one. It was Jack, Jack Flack. Jack Flack, of course, Mr. Flack. Of course, a club pro from from the great state of Iowa, oh, of uh, who knocked off Mr. Hogan in an 18-hole playoff at the Olympic Club. The Olympic Club has has kind of built a reputation over the years for the stars never quite being able to uh, prevail. We, of course, had, as I mentioned, Jack Flack beat Ben Hogan. Billy Casper went on to beat Arnold Palmer in the tournament that we're going to talk about today. Scott Simpson beat frontrunner Tom Watson. Lee Jansen beat Payne Stewart. And, of course, Webb Simpson beat John Peterson as and well. The, and the Jungle and, Bird. And, and the Jungle Bird in, in 2012. Um, just to help you help you place what kind of, you know, 1966, a lot of golf history kind of can, can run together just to help you guys get a foothold in, in what kind of era we're talking about here. It was the first major ever played by Lee Trevino, Hale Irwin, and Johnny Miller, all of their first major. Huh. Damn. All three made the cut. Uh, any guesses on who the low amateur was? Lee Trevino. Uh, Johnny Miller. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, Olympic Club junior member Johnny Miller. Of course. Who wow. was a... Uh, well, that's why I thought it was, he was going to bring it up, because he was going to say Lee Trevino beat the hometown kid. He did not. Uh, no, Johnny Miller was 19 years old, and he finished T8. Wow. wow! This was two years Shit. two years after winning the U.S. Junior. He rolls in and finishes T eight at the uh, U.S. Open. <laughs> Nothing but love for Mr. Johnny Miller from me, per usual. Here, the depth of professional golf might have been a little bit different, back then. slightly different. But uh, I will say, listen, man, Arnie, Jack, DJ is still litigating his Johnny Miller underrated case. It was totally relevant to the conversation, as you will see. Kind of on the back end of that, who's aging out of some of these majors? Uh, it was the first time in 30 years Sam Snead failed to qualify for U.S. Open, just for, for context. It was also the second to last appearance at the U.S. Open for Ben Hogan, who finished T12 at the age of 53. Mm. So you had 19-year-old Johnny Miller uh, finishing, I forget where he finished, T8, I just said, and then uh, Ben Hogan at 53 finishing T12. So pro golf, man. It's wild. The winner share... For this, uh, this is this has nothing to do with the collapse, but I just think it's kind of fun stuff. The winner share twenty five thousand dollars, uh, equivalent to as inflation calculators would would peg it uh, about two hundred thousand dollars today. I was going to guess way lower than that. Of course, last year's winner Gary Woodland received two point two five million dollars for winning the U.S. Open. So things have changed. I didn't realize this. 
the continuous putting rule was in effect at this U.S. Open, which means once you start putting, you're not allowed to mark your ball for anything Ooh. other than cleaning it. So if you're 30 feet away and Neil's 15 feet away, you are putting until you hole out, and then Neil will putt after that. Confession? Never knew that was a rule. I didn't know that was a rule either. How long did it last? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I'll look that up once I'm done with my presentation. Huh. It sounds like it should definitely still be a rule. It, so the... The goal was to speed up play, which we're going to get to in a bit. But where it, one part where I think it's relevant, or one point where I think it's relevant, is that Billy Casper, who went on to win this, uh, didn't have one three-putt for until the 18-hole playoff, which is kind of mind-blowing that you have to just, you don't, you're not marking, you're not like taking more time to read your putt, you're just going, 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 and he didn't three-putt once uh, during the regulation 72 holes. Of course, as I mentioned, it did go into an 18-hole playoff. It was the fourth playoff in five years for the U.S. Open. Crazy to think that I think the last one was, what, Tiger in 2008? Have we really like not had one since then? Correct. Wild. And of course. Thanks to Dustin Johnson at the 2015 <laughs> U.S. Open. Exactly. Of course, Mr. Palmer had won the 1960 U.S. Open at Cherry Hills after famously starting the day seven shots back, shooting 65. Um, took him 18 holes to... Uh, capsized that seven shot lead really hard to really hard to overcome a seven shot lead almost impossible to overcome a seven shot lead but mr palmer was able to do it now let's get to the week shall we please coming into the week mr palmer was quoted as saying just how bad his putting was which is wild because he would go on to challenge the all-time u.s open scoring record as we'll get to uh he fired an opening round 71 uh he was tied with jack nicholas and the bay area's native son Champagne Tony Lima as well. That's right. I believe this was his final U.S. Open. That's you're, you're skipping to the last oh, chapter. I'm sorry. That's okay. They were a couple shots behind. He was four back of first-round leader Al Mengert. Spoiler alert, he did not go on to win. Uh, he Icaritoed twice, which is crazy. 67-77. <laughs> then he shot 71 to get back into a tie for seventh. Then he shot 81 in the final round. <laughs> Hell yes. Which was he un- should have done what Neil does, which is when you play a course a second time, you try to shoot a lower score. You always try to shoot, you play better. Yeah. Usually it works. But I think that's where you're able to learn from those mistakes yeah. and really evolve. Uh, Wild Bill Casper shot an opening round 69, two shots back of the lead, uh, two ahead of Palmer, Johnny Miller. 19 years old, shoots 70s T5 after round one. Did, did they call him Wild Bill Casper? No. <laughs> that's, that's a new one. That one was sick. That was great. That was like, really? <laughs> Always be evolving. No, I think he was decidedly not wild. Yeah. I think that was, I think that would be one of those ironic nicknames. Uh, heading into round two, the, the lead actors start to, to borrow a phrase, to lift and separate. Mr. Palmer. Who are we borrowing that phrase from? I, think I, I, don't, I think Tron and I, I don't know. Some you guys always say that all the time. That was a, that's a TC football yeah. jargon one. I, yeah, I'm not sure the original sourcing on that. <laughs> Scholars have lost the original. It's been so. around for a long time. Uh, quoting, but, quoting anonymous. But do you know what lift and separate is, is relation to? Because I tried to Google this once to try to figure it out. I did no, not it know. It's like you're you're taking off. No, it means like bra removal. Oh, yeah. I like know a lot of bras claim to lift and separate. <laughs> lift and se- if you just oh. type in lift and separate. Oh, really? Maybe I always like, thought it was an airplane leaving the runway. Maybe it's not removal. Then I don't know exactly what how it works. But if you Google lift and separate, it's like about bras. We encourage everyone to pause this podcast <laughs> and, list, and, and do that at this point. But I thought it was yeah. a sports phrase because I'd heard Tron say it. <laughs> well, he always says it like, you know, taking the top off the defense, lift and separate. I thought they were kind of... I think it's just like generic. Yeah. I thought know. it was like hang cleans, like lift and separate, like, which uh, would make I more never, sense. Yeah. Never, heard, you, never heard that 
tossed around the weight room. It could be anything. It could, yeah. I think it's a great phrase. As I, as I was saying, back to my notes, by round two, the lead actors were starting to lift and separate. <laughs> Mr. Arnold Palmer shot a second round 66. Ooh, that's blazing. That is a blazing round at the U.S. Open. I don't have to tell you guys that. Bill Casper, 68. They're tied for the lead at three under par, three clear of the rest of the field after 36 holes. Uh, worth noting, I mentioned they had the continuous putting rule in play to, to hopefully speed up play. The group of Mr. Nicholas... Tony Lima and Bruce Devlin was given a slow play warning during the second round. Uh, Jack, of course, was just a few shots off the lead. They're given a slow play warning. Jack immediately made four consecutive bogeys. Sick. <laughs> uh, and it turned into like this. There's all these awesome newspaper articles from the you know from 1966 about Jack feuding with the USGA. Uh, they totally buried the hatchet on Saturday. It was it's great stuff. Can you believe I don't play slow? It's not me, it's these guys. Yeah, what do you want me to do? I can't, I can't play faster. There was a lot of he did say, like, no, they came up to me separately and said, like, it wasn't me they were worried about. <laughs> which I thought was very it was pretty on brand. But slow uh, play is not new in golf. Any of the highlights I've ever watched, not. I'm like, oh my god, hit the ball. Yeah. I was I was so nervous to include this because it's so not relevant to the rest of the conversation, but I'm glad you guys are into it, and so let me dig a little deeper. Jack's quote, this was from, uh, I believe, the Eugene Register Guard. Uh, <laughs> they are great with their online archives. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh, I thought yes. Yeah. No, I find oh, it's a, awesome. a lot of their articles. Um, they got an SEO wizard up yeah. there. He accused the group of, quote, ruining my tempo with their speed-up policemen hanging around my neck, and, <laughs> end quote. Um, the next day, Jack played with, Young amateur John Miller mm. uh, in the third to last group. This is the third to last group at the U.S. Open, a decidedly hard U.S. Open. They played in three hours and twenty-five minutes. What? Uh, the first group off was Charles Cootie and Claude King, mm. who played in two hours and thirty-seven minutes. <laughs> and Cootie claims that six different officials told them to play faster. <laughs> what? They played in two hours and thirty-seven minutes, and six officials told them that they were playing too slow. Uh, they had a 15-minute meeting. This is, again, all from the Eugene Register Guard. They had a 15-minute meeting in the scoring trailer afterwards to decide whether they would be penalized oh for playing too slow. Well, and Cootie said, this is extreme. It takes all the fun out of the game to have these officials constantly telling us to hurry up. <laughs> I will, like, yes, that's insanely fast, but golf courses that where the tee boxes were right next to the greens and without lightning fast greens exactly. is a different Standard of measurement now two thirty seven is insane. It's literally, I would say twice as fast as the rounds you'll see at Wingfoot this year. Yes, <laughs> easily for sure. <laughs> Unbelievable. Anyways, back to the task at hand. Can we take a little break before we get sure. going too far yeah. to talk about our friends at Herbal Active? U R B A L A C T I V. Uh, I mentioned right before we started recording that I was going to be interrupting somebody about this moment in, and Neil said. That reminds I me. I said, speaking of Herbal Active, and I reached behind me, and I hit the drops, baby. <laughs> it's not going to make you play any faster. No, it's <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> you had to scrape the bottom of the barrel for that one. We uh, we might need to hit him up for a, a re-up. I got, I got, the, I re- got a, the res hits on the, on the Herbal Active bottle. No, I got one in my top kit. There's yeah. a, a lot of people have a lot of questions about Herbal Active. Again, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Uh, one of those questions is, sir, how do I, how do I get a discount? And you can use promo code NLU20 to get 20% off all of your CBD needs. 
But I will point you towards their frequently asked questions on their website. It would take me a while to go through all these, but if you want to know what CBD is, will you get high? Uh, the answer to that is no. Uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of answers to a lot of questions on there, and it's very, very helpful. I couldn't even go into all the details about the CBD oil and the balms and all the things that they have. So go to their website, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V, Herbal Active, promo code NLU20 for 20% off. Um, we've been, I've been measuring my sleep a little bit lately with something we're going to talk about in, in the future, but measuring if I sleep better with CBD or if I don't, and I do sleep better once I take the CBD. It's, really? it's factual now. How at about this point. that? So, There's data. We're crunching the numbers. Neil, do you think you would have collapsed at the Vinker course had you <laughs> been, you know, enjoying one of their mints or perhaps a, well, a piece I was, of gum? I was going to say this is a good I, sponsor for this episode. It sounds like some of these guys probably could have used some CBD yeah. down the stretch. I think, it, you know, it wouldn't have, I don't think it would have hurt. We can't prove that it would, yeah. that would, it would have hurt. Yeah. You yeah. know, so check them out. DJ. So oh, that's very helpful, man. Yes. Thank you. Moving back into the story. So we have Casper and Palmer, three clear of the lead after. That's right. After 36 right. holes. Three clear of, of the next best, I should say. After 36 holes. Round three. Arnold, Mr. Palmer, completely takes control. Even par 70 on Saturday. Always going to be a good score at the US Open. He's going to take 18 pars today. I don't have to tell you guys. Uh, that's I'm, always going to be good. I love Arnold, Mr. Palmer. <laughs> uh, Bill Casper shoots 73. Arnold has a three-shot lead going into the final final uh, final round. Jack's four shots back. He's in solo third. Johnny Miller, not relevant, but he's nine shots back. Uh, round four. Here we go. Palmer goes nuts on the front nine. Just absolutely blitzes everybody. Uh, he gets in home and two on the opening par five. Maybe very reminiscent of driving the green at Cherry Hills. Uh, that 1960 comeback. Makes birdie at one. He goes on to shoot three under on the front nine. Leading by three, he goes out and shoots three under on the front nine. Billy Casper shoots one over on the front nine. Mm. And so Dude, the, the army, the army's just the army is just right now. They're the charging. army is losing their minds yeah. right now. Uh, Let's go, Arnie. We are, we your, are army. your army. Mike, a young Mike Stone. They're kicking his opponent's ball good. into the trees. <laughs> no, there's none of that. This was back when golf was a gentleman's game. Uh, if you're doing the math at home, that's a, a seven-shot lead. Sound familiar? It's a seven-shot lead with nine holes to play for Mr. Palmer. Insurmountable. Insurmountable. Uh, Ian O'Connor, who we're going to quote here shortly, had a, a piece where it was very offhand and very anecdotal, but he said, yeah, Jack once asked offhand in a press conference, how big was Arnold's lead that day? And someone said seven shots, and he just gasped and said, man, how did he let that happen? <laughs> <laughs> and so, Which, to this point, Arnie's a, his seven-time major winner. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Not exactly a lightweight. No. Know? Yeah. That's what it like this weird when the the collapse doesn't fit the narrative of the player. Yeah. It's what makes it so bizarre. Totally. Sounds like, you know, to borrow some a history for he, the empire got a little too big. You well, know, he got it, he overextended himself a I little bit. I think that might be an astute observation. This is from uh, Ian O'Connor when when the US Open returned to the Olympic Club in 2012. Uh, he wrote a, a reflective piece about the day for ESPN. And this was a uh, quoting from from that Palmer wanted Ben Hogan's open scoring record of 276. He had no use for Hogan, an automaton who, who never referred to Palmer by name. Arnie wanted a piece of Hogan and a piece of history, so he started firing at pins in pursuit of both. Oh, God. Icarita. <laughs> Honestly. Uh, a, he a, continues. Automaton? Yeah. That's coming. That's, that's a great word. That. That's, I have not heard that. Uh, he continues. Casper, who was busy playing for his parting gift, or sorry, Casper was busy playing for his parting gift. 
At the turn, he told Palmer he just wanted to hold off Nicholas for second place, and Arnie, ever the good sport, gave Casper a little pep talk, told him to keep plugging away and everything would work out. <laughs> End quote. The takeaway there is, as I mentioned, the Ben Hogan scoring record is 276. Arnie's trying to, as many people have surmised, he's he's keeping the foot on the gas, trying to come in at 275. He bogeys 10. Not a big deal. Leads down to six. We're fine. We're fine. Six six shot we're, lead with eight to play. Good. We're gonna hit bad shots. We always we always do. do. He pars eleven. Six shot lead with seven to play. Oh. He birdies twelve. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. Palmer would later say that making that birdie quote could have been the worst break of all because it convi- <laughs> because it convinced me I could still get the record. You gotta go after those pins. That's a that, that's like a tiger quote. <laughs> it yeah. is. Yeah. I got so unlucky at birdie 12. I just didn't really want to make birdie there. So I I forget (laughs) where it all kind of shakes out, but uh, he goes on, he bogeys 13. So I believe we're down to five now. At the par 3 15th, Palmer again fires at the pin, which is nestled up against his bunker, misses the green, hits it in the bunker, doesn't get up and down. Casper makes a 20-footer for birdie, two-shot swing, leads down to three. Wow. So when he birdied 12, though, did... It was still six. Did Casper birdie two? Believe it was. I think it was okay. a par five that they both birdied. I could be wrong. In fact, it was a par four. They did both birdie. Okay, though. thank you. So at, at the time, blah blah blah. You know, two shot swing on fifteen. Casper's quote about that birdie on fifteen was that he never actually seriously considered the fact that he could win until that moment. He said, "Quote: That's the only time I felt like I could actually catch him." They moved to sixteen. Palmer snap hooks it. Off the tee, into the woods. Shout out to Jim Furyk. Uh, any comments on that? They moved the tee up. <laughs> they moved the tee up. He was I totally confused. I thought did that on 17. It was 16. It was 16, 16 the yeah. par 5. There's two far, par 5s in a row, 16, 17 at Olympic. I think 17's par 3, but I could be wrong. Okay. Either way. Let's not get lost in this. Sorry. I wonder, sorry, if, no, was sorry. he trying to hit the, the hook, though? I, just, put, I don't know. He may have put, yeah, exactly. put like Forest Park. <laughs> if anyone has seen our Strapped episode of Forest Park, Neil can relate to... You know, snap looking uh, well, into no, the woods. He executed his plan. Yeah. That's it's the just, shot I was trying to hit. He's just over executed. <laughs> I stand by that. Um, he's just. It is back to back par five, 16 and 17. Right? Ah, yeah. But it was, did happen at 16 to Jim okay. Furyk. Good catch. So he's banging around in the woods. He has to scramble to make to save bogey on 16. Casper makes birdie. Oof. The lead is down to one. Oh, boy. With on two to play. 17. 17. Palmer has a seven footer left for par. He leaves it short. Mm. <sighs> Tough scene. Mm. We're all tied up. Going to 18. Arnold, after having, what did I say, a six-shot lead with eight to play, mm-hmm. uh, now has to make a gnarly up and down. He misses the green at 18. Has to make a gnarly four-footer downhill uh, just to force a playoff, which he makes. He would call it the most important putt of his career, I believe, at one point. <laughs> and just to, to recap, so we're going to a playoff. Just to recap here, Palmer shot 39 on the back, par 35. Casper shot 32. So shout out to Billy Casper. I mean, it was a, you know, it was a massive collapse, but Casper did. He went out and got it. He went out and got it. And Army Morales. Is Army Morales is tough. Very low. There was a lot of news. It's always hard to believe, like, the newspaper reports at the time because they're very, like, champ, champ, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what would you, whatever, I'm not going to do the impression, but, That's like. Scallywag <laughs> came and ran yeah. you down. But there's a lot of, like, oh, the, the home crowd, they turned on Palmer and they were rooting on the underdog yeah. and Casper, and, which <laughs> I don't know how much of that I believe, but. The army said, are we the baddies? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So they both finished seven shots ahead of solo third. So kind of a, a, a troon situation with, with Henrik and, uh, and Phil maybe. But 
Of course, Randy, as you mentioned earlier, uh, so Nicholas finished solo third. The Bay Area's affable hometown man, Tony Lima, finished in a tie for fourth. Champagne Tony. And, of course, that would be his final uh, major, I believe, and he would die a month later in a plane crash, as Randy astutely pointed out in our, was I believe, our What If podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I would encourage everybody to go back and, and listen to that. Uh, on to the playoff. So 18-hole playoff, as everybody knows. The U.S. Open, Palmer again got off to a great start. He birdied two of the first seven. Casper bogeyed number nine, and Arnold was two up with nine holes to play. Second Total second chance. Total redemption. Casper birdied 12, and Palmer, I'm sorry, Palmer bogeyed 12, and Casper birdied 12, so they were tied all of a sudden. Casper birdied 13 to take the lead, and then he just never gave it back. Uh, starting at that 12th hole where we had the two-shot swing, uh, and, and he had a two-shot lead, Palmer went bogey, par, bogey, double, par, par to lose by four. Mm. Tough scene. Two, two shot lead. Most dangerous lead. Most dangerous in sports. lead in sports. This was, of course, Arnold Palmer's third U.S. Open playoff. It was, of course, his third loss in a Jeez. U.S. Open playoff as well. The next year, he would finish runner up to Jack Nicholas for his fourth runner up at the U.S. Open in six years. And of course, unlike Phil, we'll we'll end it with this. He would never win another major. So, wow, the, that that's the nineteen sixty six U.S. Open. So, I think what I think one of the main questions, a very important question, we have to ask is on on the spectrum of was this a crowning? How much of this was a crowning? Well, thirty two on the back. That's Casper. The, that's the question. Yeah, I, I think it was. Uh, Keep plugging away, sport. Exactly. I, I, I can I say maybe half crowning, half. Half went and got it. Okay. Almost say. always in these collapses, there is like the guy that ends up winning, like Paul Laurie, ninety nine Open Championship. He balled out. Final round sixty seven. Like he went out and got it. Like he it fell into his lap, but you have to play unbelievably. Faldo, final round sixty seven to Norman's seventy eight. Like he went out and got it. At least a little bit. Like it had to get handed to him, but there's some it wasn't like you shoot like Trevor Emmelman shot final round seventy five, I think, at the 08 Masters, and won by like three. Like that was just like, all right, well, nobody, nobody came and got it. Um, if, if Billy Casper shot even par on the back and won, hundred percent crowning. Yes, but he didn't. There, you know, he went, well, I would say it's not a crowning because there. Were, it sounds like there were two spots in that back nine where there was a multiple shot swing. Yeah, which to me indicates a non crowning. Oh, oh yeah, well that's good. I'm just asking the yeah. question. That's no, fair. and That's I appreciate question. that. Can I say something really dumb? Sure. That people people are going to hate, but <laughs> <We'll> <laughs> please, yeah, please, the floor is yours. <laughs> so you you started talking about like going for the record, like with the sh- six shot lead, and it, there was a, for most of my life I would have looked at them and been like that's so dumb. Just be disciplined. Just like hit iron. Like play it safe. Blah blah blah. I will say, like, just playing a little bit of tournament golf, tournament golf, the event that I was playing, I had, like, a probably, I thought, like, a six-shot lead playing the 18th hole. And my instinct was, like, I I don't want to win by by five. Like, it was just, like, I don't know how to describe it, but it wasn't, like, the task in front of me is no longer the task in front of me. It's, like, this is what my, I'm testing myself now. And Arnie had to feel like, you know, like, I'm not playing the field. I'm playing my own game. Blowing it probably didn't enter his mind. And the idea of like this is where my mind is now focused doesn't sound as crazy and dumb and rec- it doesn't sound as reckless to me as it might have at one time. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's fair. And I get the like needing to keep you know keep motivation to avoid complacency and all that. Let's stuff. go get three more. Let's go get three more exactly. But the I think what makes it so shocking is the fact that 
there was no way, like once it starts to turn, there's no way to like hit the emergency yeah, break. exactly. And be like, you know what? Okay, never now mind. Now I just want to win. <laughs> now let's just win. Now let's just play to the center. Like it's it's quicksand. Like once it goes, it's it's you're going in the wrong direction. It's pick six, baby. It's yeah. going the other way. <laughs> no, 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 no. As soon as you release that ball in the outfit. Exactly. Corners jump the route. No, no, yeah. no, no, The no, two-shot no. swings are the turnovers. Mm-hmm. So there, right? there's some interesting quotes out there from, like, Casper and, and other golfers, too. I'm like, yeah, no, that, that pretty much – that pretty much wrecked him that day. Like, he was not the same after that. He went and still won, I think, another 12 PGA Tour events or something after that, but never another major. So that was interesting beautiful. stuff. Thank beautiful. you, Mr. Pye. Oh, please. My pleasure. Next up. Is it? Who was is it? Is it me? I don't remember. You? I'm, either way, I'm happy to go if you'd like. Go ahead, Randy. Okay. Four uh, is yours. We, we got to separate us murdering the Aussies here, just for uh, just All right, spread you want it out me a little go? bit. No, he's he's got he's gonna he's gonna put a gun to the head of an Aussie unless you're uh, doing yeah, an Aussie no, no, too. Good call. Oh. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we still don't know who Neil's doing. Okay. So we'll. It's we'll, not an Aussie. We'll okay. leave that suspense. Mr. Adam Scott, the 2012 British Open. Let me before I get into it. I'm curious. It's it's a little bit of a. Like, I kind of remember watching it, but I don't really remember that much detail. So I am i don't know if I'm alone in that. Do you guys remember that much? Do it you was, remember it vividly? It was actually, I was thinking about doing this one until you claimed it, because I, 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 it jumped in my head first. It's like, oh, man, I want to check that out, because I don't remember it well, but I do remember it being brutal, I guess. I vividly remember the 18th hole, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know. Obviously, we won't jump. We won't leapfrog any of your research, but I remember having some very complicated thoughts about that. I remember diving back into it before I went to Lytham. It was kind of like, all right, I want to, you know, when I get to these spots, I want to see where history unfolded. And I just remember it being like, it just didn't feel like a choke or a gag to me. It was just a slow bleed. It was like, this is hard. Yeah. This is a hard one too. Holy crap, like a little mistake <laughs> here and you're going to make bogey. And he just it just kept happening. Like The odds of it keep happening we're so low. And then 18 was kind of like, okay, that was the one that, yeah, you probably shouldn't have let that happen. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Sorry if I, got, I spoiled too much. No, here. no, no. That's that's great. That's a, it's a great setup. It's that we're going to Royal Litham in St. Anne's, which obviously you've played. I think I don't – I haven't – yeah. Because that was one of the things I'm curious about. The, the course doesn't stand out for me at all. But from reading about it, like it starts with a par three. Mm-hmm. Apparently that week – you know, compared to previous opens there, they had narrowed a ton of the holes, which, you know, the groundskeeper, like, still disputed, even though, like, I was deep in, like, Jeff Shackelford's site, like, <laughs> aerial photography showing... They the, narrowed a bunch of fairways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grew the rough up. Is it a funky course, though? Is It's it, not funky. It's just, like, it's hemmed in. I mean, you're, like, in a neighborhood more so than you are a lot of traditional links courses. It's not set on the sea. Like, there's just been building... Like you, there's no views of the sea the whole time. And there's, so there's building and like a road behind the par three, the opening hole and are like, that's pretty much the parking lot. And then you're kind of all houses in a train track that runs down the right side and you get to this far point of the property and there's like these little apartments in it and just this really tight little nook and cranny and you turn back around. So it's, it's got some funk to it and it's not traditional, like out and back. Like when you start coming in on the back nine, the holes really start to zigzag in and no matter what direction the wind is in, you are going to be chasing or like facing some very challenging shots. So like at the old course, if the wind is coming, I forget which direction it is, but if you're downwind on the back nine, you're downwind basically the whole back nine almost, mm-hmm. except for essentially number 10. So you can just kind of ride the wind coming in. This is like, no, you're it's quartering off the left here. Now it's into you off the right. Now it's down off the left. And it's just a if your game isn't really tight, it's going to get exposed. 
at Lytham, the wind changes, you're saying? No, the holes change. Okay. So the holes direction changes. So it, at St. Andrews, they're yeah, going, yeah, you're coming in all okay. down the same direction. And a, a decent, like Muirfield's really good at changing directions and stuff. So you're going to face kind of some of those same challenges. But Lytham is just, it's not a, like, it's not a long, long course. It's just, I don't know how to describe it. It's really tough shots. They're so many bunkers. I think at this time, there's probably 250. I think they've taken some out. There's like over 250 bunkers for around this time, the, tw the 2012 Open. And they're small, but everything feeds into them. Like it is huge mounds around them. So it looks pretty innocuous, like from the fairway. And then you hit a shot up on a hill and it's like, no, that's going in. That's not stopping until it gets in a bunker. You have to be in total control. I'm surprised Cat hasn't had more success there, to be honest. Is this that was to, a to spectacular, me, spectacular yeah, painting gonna, of the picture? Yeah, to help me place it. Thus it, concludes my presentation. <laughs> is, this, uh, is this where Woosman had the two-stroke penalty? Yes, on the opening par three, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, he he identified the, on the second, second hole because hole. he didn't hit driver off one. Yeah. He had two drivers in the bag, which is an incredible clip to go back and watch. Yeah. You just you have one job to do and you couldn't do it. <laughs> like yells at him on the second tee. What, what, what do you guys think of opening par threes? At Lytham, it works. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's you know it's quirky. I, I like kind of it. associate him with like Nicholas designs, like really. Well, like or like <laughs> random. No, I guess the not opening par threes, but par threes in like on eighteen, like par threes in random places. I don't know why. When I was growing up in Atlanta, there were a couple of courses I played Atlanta Junior Golf, and a couple of Nicholas courses were on the on the Rota, and they had like <laughs> you know just like weird layouts like that. It just kind of mm. that's how I associated it as a kid. I feel like the opening links part three, especially, it feels like a punch in the nuts. Oh, no, I think it's sweet. Really? I yeah. don't know. I just, I feel like you got to be so much, maybe, maybe I'm totally wrong, but it seems like a lot of the, you know, more American style part threes, you just kind of can hit it like around the green. Whereas I, maybe I just think about Kill Spindy, which is awesome. When we played there and I hit it in that bunker because I made like one, like a horrible swing on the first hole and then all of a sudden made like triple because you're in a pop bunker first thing of the day. Randy just, made birdie. He loves that. Would you like to exactly. hear about my experience? <laughs> no. Or, uh, Pacific Grove. Yeah. Opening par three. Exactly. I shaked it, <laughs> it out of bounds. I, I, I do agree with you. You can fake a driver more yes, than you can fake like a, yes. a six iron or five iron off the opening tee. A much better explanation of what like I was Like driver, I'm like, yeah, I can find the club face. So who knows where it's going, but it'll get out there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So like you said, par 70, just over 7,000 yards. It's playing in, in 2012. Very tame weather, rounds one and two, not much wind. Adam Scott goes out and shoots a course record tying 64. I'm not sure if that course record still stands. Uh, that was one better than a, a trio, including uh, – I always like to look at the names in these early rounds. Uh, Zach Johnson, Nicholas Colsarts, and Paul Lowry. Two better than Mr. Brand Snedeker, uh, and three better than a whole host of people, Rory, Tiger, and, and Ernie. Snedeker was bucking at this time. He was playing so well every week. Yeah. And that was I remember that on it was either Friday or Saturday that he was leading. And I remember vividly being like, Oh, he's for sure gonna win this. Like so cool, Brant's finally gonna pull through. And that quickly didn't happen. But. Can I run through the odds real quick just because I love time setting? <laughs> yeah. Me. So please. opening odds, Tiger eight to one, Westwood twelve to one, Luke Donald sixteen to one, Padraig Harrington sixteen to one, Rory twenty to one, Francesco Molinari, uh Graham McDowell, Justin Rose, Martin Keimer, Phil Ricky and Sergio all thirty three to one. Adam Scott forty to one. Ernie forty to one. Maybe Snedeker wasn't bucking as much as I thought. <laughs> well, no, he well he certainly bucked in round two. He tied the sixty four. Uh, so Snedeker took a one shot lead going into the weekend. Scott played really well. He's one shot back at at nine under. And then 
four back of Snedeker then is is Tiger in solo third. We'll keep tabs on Ernie. He is seven back. He's at minus three total going into the weekend. So we come out round three, kind of the same story, uh, except that Snedeker is on the struggle bus. He, um, he he gets on it early and comes in, struggles to a, a 73. So that's that's kind of the end of the week for, for Mr. Sneds. Uh, Adam Scott shoots a 68. Everything's going really well. He's, he's now got a four-shot lead after the third round over uh, the aforementioned Brant Snedeker. Mm. And now GMAC is in the mix, seven under. Tiger's lurking. He's six under, five shots back of Adam Scott. Ernie is in a, in, in a group at five under, which is six shots back going into the final round. Adam Scott was only minus 150 going into the final round, and Ernie was 22 to one. Well, it's a four-shot lead, only minus 150. That's surprising to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think at this time, you know, Adam Scott has not won a major. Certainly, I, I think GMAC is in the full, like, bulldog stage. You couldn't call him a favorite, but I, I think if maybe the prevailing thought was, hey, if somebody's going to come win this, it's it's probably going to be McDowell. Um, and the so- cat has... And the At cat. least won a couple times already this season. <laughs> and that's very true. The, yeah. the the cat is right there as well. Um, but hasn't really, I'm trying to remember, uh, apart from those Masters, hasn't really contended hardcore on like a Sunday in a major. What's that? <laughs> what's that? Oh, what's that? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong, but I, I, I remember that being, feeling very significant that the cat was so close because he, you know, we're still waiting for him to get over the hump. And would go on to wait for another <laughs> eight years. So uh, we head to Sunday. The winds freshen a little bit. Uh, certainly nothing apocalyptic weather-wise. And so I think that's Solly. That was great background info of that. You know, even with the winds freshening just a little bit, it, it starts to create all kinds of uh, quartering winds and and. You know the the way the course is is set up and laid out, uh, it just forces a lot of it's just more difficult shots. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah, even the potential for the to get level. gusted. Yeah, you can get gusted on very quickly. Uh, so Scott bogeys the first hole again. He's got a four shot lead going into Sunday. Uh, he comes out, he bogeys the first hole, uh, but he's fine. Bounces back with a birdie on two. Um, we're golden. Yeah, we're we're fine. Graham McDowell drops a shot on two. Ernie Hells drops a shot on two. Uh, he is comfortably in command. Uh, Scott goes on. It's it's not a great front nine. He shoots two over par, but re- in relation to everybody else, I mean, Ernie shoots two over par on the front nine. Snedeker shoots four over par on the front nine. Tiger shoots three over par on the front nine. GMAC shoots two over par on the front nine. Um, so it's not it's not a standout. So he's still leading by four. He's he's in fact he's leading by uh, four shots. That yeah. is correct. <laughs> <laughs> we can now confirm at this point. This just we are now comfortable confirming that. Um, so he, he leads by four, uh, and that's over GMAC. He leads by six over L's at the turn, mm. um, and he leads by six over Snedeker and Woods and and others. Uh, Man, so, I didn't realize Ernie was that far back. So yeah, so that's my point is we're we're nine holes through Championship Sunday and Adam Scott is in control. So we we head to the back nine. Ernie Els is of course playing in front of Adam Scott. So let's let's highlight Els's back nine first. And this is where every collapse 
seemingly has to also coincide with somebody playing really well uh, to be in a position. It's uh, it's the duality, if you will, of of a collapse, and and that's all credit to Ernie. That's what he did. He shot a four under bogey free back nine, um, and would eventually get in the clubhouse at seven under. Are we? Maybe you guys can help me place this. Are, we're in the throes of like mega. I won't call them yips, but lots and lots of short misses from Ernie at this point, right? Yes, yes. especially on like on the PJ tour. That's that's a thing that's going on at this point. And he has gone to the belly putter. Right. This is this is pre-anchoring ban. This is complete sweepstakes with the with the long putters. I remember that being a theme of this as well. Is every time he had a short putt, it was kind of like there's no way he's going to keep making all of these, and he kind of seemed like he did. Yes. And he's kind of in a dark spot overall yes. with his game. He's 42 years old, I believe, at the time. Doesn't have a significant win in quite some time, and is is really on kind of an edge of. Hey, I'm either gonna get a win and really have this flourish to to, to my 40s, or you know things are kind of going away quickly here. <laughs> and so that's that's a good backdrop. Of course, Adam Scott is is 32. He hasn't won a major. He's chasing, you know, that first major. I think the British Open for non U.S. Americans is right at the top of <laughs> like the list, right? Like I think we probably it was a bigger deal than like he is now almost in terms yeah. of like hasn't won a major. Like here is the guy. When is he going to win one? Exactly. Now I feel like he's so forgotten about. But agree, it's a different conversation. But um, Adam Scott's idol, which we'll get to later on with Solly, was Greg Norman. Um, so to set the scene set the scene uh, with this back nine. So this is from Bill Pennington's New York Times uh, to, to set the scene of Adam Scott. When Adam Scott was 15 years old, he watched a monumental golf collapse on television and cried. And that, of course, is Greg Norman, uh, the 1996 Masters, which Solly's going to really color in for us a, a bit later. Uh, but that's that's his hero, right? And that's like one of his early defining moments is Norman's huge collapse. So how, how, how does this happen? Well, let's let's dive into the back nine. The first thing we need to know is Adam Scott pars 10, pars 11, pars 12, pars 13. So he is completely in control. He goes to the 14th hole and he makes a birdie. Oh, we're good. <laughs> we're so good. We are golden. He's Of, of course, Els is ahead of him. Uh, so in real time, with Scott birdieing 14, uh, Els is at minus six at that point. So Adam Scott goes to the 15th tee with a four-shot lead. Uh, four holes remaining, four-shot lead. He's got it. I still think he's going to win this. He's got it, right? <laughs> he's got it. Well, in fact, he, he doesn't <laughs> What if I told you he doesn't got it? And and this is what's really interesting, and I'll get into some of his quotes, but it, it's it's as simple as he bogeyed 15, he bogeyed 16, he bogeyed 17, he bogeyed 18. Uh, and he finishes at minus 6. Ernie rolled in a birdie putt on 18 to get to minus 7, and that's that. Yeah, I think there's a lack of an iconic shot in the water or you know leaving one in the bunker. It, 18 well, was a tough like I forget exactly how it played out but it's it he he didn't choose the right club off the tee basically he brought it he had a club that brought a certain bunker into play and he hit it right in the bunker and had to chip out sideways yeah hit it to eight feet and had a look to get into the playoff and but even that that's right he hits such a good shot in yeah. after chipping out that doesn't feel iconic no like, you know like when a guy you know hits it 
There's no Vandeveld moment. Yeah, it's like, oh my god, he's really this is happening. Yeah, he didn't, you know, wasn't hacking around in the in the bushes and lose a golf ball and then miraculously find the golf ball, even though somebody found a golf ball marked similarly in the coming days, like <laughs> some unknown person to the right of the sixteenth green back in the something Gary Player. (laughs) (laughs) Go read that story. Something something weird happened in the in the rough to the right of I think like the sixteenth hole or something like that. I didn't want to bag out of DR, but there was a quote from Gary Player on this nineteen sixty six US Open about what the winning score was going to be. It was like ten shots off what it actually was. (laughs) (laughs) So let's. I, I I found the most interesting quotes to actually be from Graham McDowell who was Scott's playing partner. Adam Scott is like... As they usually are, by the way. Yeah. They're usually where the best quotes come from. Well, and I think to to set the stage is like Adam Scott... I I think what's almost most memorable about this collapse is the fact that it's not that memorable. And I think Adam Scott's natural personality and demeanor and the way he just accepted what happened goes a long way in that, like, we don't have the Mickelson, I'm such an idiot, or the Vandeveld, like, complete chaos uh, of the moment. Um, and so I did want to point that out, is that it, it's almost memorable in, in the fact that it's, like, not that memorable. Um, and, and that's to Adam Scott's personality. And I think credit, although as a fan, it's like, eh, give me a little something. Bring a club or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was just no, like, oh, you idiot. Yeah. Like, it was just, yeah. everyone was like, come on, man, you can do this. And it just barely kept going wrong. Yeah. So the 15th hole was, was very difficult, and, and Scott makes bogey. And there's nothing really remarkable except it was a tough hole, and he made bogey. Um, and so... We get into GMAC here on, on the 16th, which Scott has a three-shot lead. Uh, the, the the 16th was kind of a shorter, as, as Bill Pennington says in his article, more accommodating par four. And um, Scott has a three-foot par putt on the hole, which, of course, he missed, uh, to which GMAC says, that putt, oh, that putt almost went in, but it didn't. i'm sure there was like a different way you said that but just reading that quote on on you know in black and white was like oh yeah well i guess he kind of describes almost everybody (laughs) (laughs) like technically could have gone in yeah reminds me of the reservoir dog thing where he's like well i don't you know either he's dead or he isn't (laughs) or the cops got him or they didn't i don't know i mean it's a three-foot apart putt the part almost went in but but it didn't um so he bogeys 16 and then we come to 17 and that's where he stripes a, a drive gmac talking he hit the most beautiful drive down the middle of the next fairway on 17 uh and for his second shot into 17 scott has about 175 yards to the hole uh the wind is blowing hard off of his right and the pins kind of set left and, and there's trouble left. So essentially, you don't want to miss left because you're going to be short-sighted. Again, McDowell says he had half of England right of that pin on the 17th green. And so uh, Scott, I believe, takes a six iron and immediately upon impact yells, get down. Um, and I think if there's one shot that probably uh, is like the most squirrely is this one because he, the miss is right. Uh, there's no excuse to throw that ball outright as far as possible, and he misses left and is in trouble. And so he doesn't get up and down for par. He makes another bogey on 17. 
McDowell, when he misses that shot on 17, McDowell says it was at that moment that the alarm bell started to ring. I thought, hold on, we may have a problem here. (laughs) So this is great. I mean, McDowell's like witnessing this in real time, and I'm glad he gave all these quotes afterwards. This is all Bill Pennington's New York Times story. But it's great to like, I I can just like picture that situation like, okay, things are good. Yeah, he's going to win. Oh, shit, we got a problem here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that makes 18 is going to be dead into the wind. If the wind's coming off the right on 17, if I remember the layout right. So that's, but so when now he's standing on 18T, like, oh shit, now I'm going into the wind and I am bleeding all over the place. Which I think makes sense because didn't he hit driver when everyone was saying to hit less than driver? Well, from the story, and that, that could be from the story, it says the previous three rounds on 18, Scott had hit three wood once, but an iron twice. Uh, Sunday, he went with the three wood and hit it too hard. Uh, it was a good, you know, it, it was in the fairway, but the ball kept rolling until it found the sand of, a, of one of the 250-some-odd pot bunkers, um, to which he had no choice but to play out sideways. So at this point, and, and up ahead, Els had birdied 18 already, um, so he's in the clubhouse at, at 7-under. Amazing putt by Ernie. Yeah. Uh, Scott's teeing off 18, finds this pot bunker at 7-under, he has to chip out, and now it gets like, oh, shit, he's got to get up and down just to tie this all of a sudden. He hits a wedge about eight eight feet, which, great shot. But then the putt, and, and this is, I think, what I remember most about watching in real time is is this 18th, the wedge shot, and then the putt. And the putt, like, had no chance. And Scott even said the putt never really had a chance, and that's very discouraging. Uh, it's not what I wanted out of today, he goes on to say, but I'm still young and hope to get more chances. I learned a long time ago to look for positives. And so, yeah, it was like... Is he using... Apologies. If yes. He's used the bridge yeah, okay. yeah. And he's looking to become... The, that's a good point. Uh, something I failed to mention. He's looking to become the first player ever to win a major using a long putter. Yeah. Which he didn't now, of course. The really, lo- the really long putter. The really yeah, long putter, yeah. the broomstick. Uh, he it's would... almost like at his forehead. Because Ke- was Keegan the first belly putter? Yes. The year before? Yeah. So so that's I mean that's the collapse in the nutshell. And honestly, and, and this is where I go back to I was hoping to find some quotes or some anecdotes and what you quickly realize with Adam Scott is like, no, there just isn't anything. Like he talked, he said, you know, obviously he's disappointed. Uh it's not the end of the world. And he kind of went on with things. I think the other telling thing is he <laughs> almost won, but he did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Ernie Els is extremely gracious in winning and i think and, and i kind of remember this as well in real time in that like ernie's not really celebrating um you can tell he he feels almost just as bad for scott as he feels good that hey i just won the british open so it kind of cast this cloud really over his victory which you know isn't ernie's fault but uh i remember in the moment thinking like yeah, this doesn't feel like uh, a normal yeah. kind of victory scene. But so. to Scott's credit, on the he showed some passion and fire winning the Masters. Oh, two right? two majors later. He's yeah, so first you know that was an that's an iconic in the rain. You know, yeah. come on, Aussie. Which I doubt that vibing. Masters happens if if yeah. this heartbreak doesn't. Because I remember after the press conference and watching him, I remember just being sick to my stomach. I was like, I feel so bad for this guy. I remember walking away from him being like, Oh, he's okay. Like he's not down on himself and kicking himself and crying up there like he 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 can that that guy can handle this yeah he might be the most interesting man in the world yeah yeah (laughs) which i we always kind of bang on the you know the class acts 
uh, tour and how it'd be a lot more fun if some of these guys were, you know, if you wanted to root against guys or whatever. But I remember that was like, there's nobody in the world rooting against Adam Scott or against Ernie Els. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, it was very much just like, ah, ah, that sucks that one of them had to brutally <laughs> lose this. But I guess the other one I'd like to, so whatever. It, it, but it, to your point, Randy, it, like, I almost called you Phil. It's been very weird. Uh, <laughs> to your point, it like, yeah, it just felt very empty, like very uh, anticlimactic, even though it was extremely exciting. Yeah. Um, and so just the f- finishing touches here, uh, one, one thing to note is uh, the Australian sports book, um, which, sorry, I'm glad you, you set up those odds at, at the uh, beginning of my part uh, sports betting online today announced that management is refunding all players who lost money betting on Adam Scott. Uh, Whoa. And the quote from Dave Johnson, their heads odd maker said, quote, with so many of the favorites, including woods, not cashing, it was a good day for sports books, <laughs> but that wasn't the case for those who dropped money on Scott. We feel it's our duty to refund the players for taking such a bad beat. His collapse was historic and we know the betters who had him must feel as awful as he does. Whoa, I've never heard that. Yeah, so the Australian sportsbook at least refunded uh, the people who had had bought Adam Scott. Did they do that for Greg Norman too? (laughs) So your your money's no good. No good, does. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that was unbelievable. So, yeah, so that's, you know, hopefully a little bit more detail or, or some clarity around the 2012 British Open. I think, I think to your point, Tali, real quick, the everybody always lumps Rory's collapse at the Masters with his U.S. Open win and the, breakthrough and i don't think we like always necessarily do the same with adam scott right i think either his master's win kind of gets mildly forgotten which is weird because it was historically amazing but also the massive collapse gets kind of uncoupled a little bit too why do i feel like you just teased what neil's about to about to go in on oh i don't know no no he's shaking his head no well, we got to we got to do an honorable mention of all the great collapses after yeah. this. I thought you were going to do Rory in 2011. No, I'm not. Okay. I thought about it, but I'm not. Like Randy's, I he's struggled gonna, a little he's bit. He's going to TC. I could have done. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I was stuck between release patterns a little bit, but I'm going firmly with one of them. And like Randy, I struggled with good quotes on this one because there wasn't a ton of good characters going on. So I'm going to open with a quote, though. Uh, this is from the Post-Gazette. Also very good with the SEO. Yes. Which I'm, I was like, look, is it? Is the Post Gazette like one of the top newspapers in the world? How do they have all these SEO historical wizards, golf man. articles? Where's that out of? Uh, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, yeah. I think. So, uh, quote. So we must be talking about Oakmont. Quote, his golf swing is so fluid and his rhythm is so good and he does everything so well. Quote by a soon-to-be NLU podcast guest. Jimmy Boy? Olin Brown? Olin Brown, quote, on the guy that collapsed. Of course, we are talking about the 2005 U.S. Open at... Oh, Jason Gore? Jason Gore? No. Yeah. Retief? Retief Goose. Oh, there's okay. a lot of collapses okay. today. That's And that's my point. So there is, <laughs> this isn't a Mansky. This is a, a three-for-one special, okay? <laughs> so it's at Pinehurst number two, pre-restoration. Second time the U.S. Open's been at Pinehurst. Uh, first time, obviously, won by Payne Stewart. Didn't realize they never had been there before because they felt like it was too rural and not close enough to a big city. Yeah, the winner... Michael Campbell, you know, one of maybe the forgotten man, Mr. Campbell, U.S. Sure. Open winners. You, what, you look at any list of uh, we didn't touch on was Ernie Els crowned, by the way. I think Ernie Els was crowned. He shot a back nine thirty one. What percent crowning? Like an eighty percent crowning at least. <laughs> back nine thirty one. I know, no thirty two, well, which is great. 
Or yeah, maybe 31, part 70, sorry. Um, it was a crowning. <laughs> this Simple. Campbell was the, the mega crowning, though he did hold off the cat who finished his solo second. Both of them shot 69 in the final round. Uh, but Michael I think Campbell's this, where? New Zealand? Yes. Is he the only, only Kiwi that, to ever win a major? that awesome Kiwi, uh, mate. Samoan shirt yes. in the final round. Um, and he, be, play, he played good. He shot one shirt. under in, and you know, finishes. But he starts the starts conditions, round, think, were, conditions were tough. Starts the final round, I think, seven or eight shots back. Um, Who could so, say? So to go through it, there's, there's a few different ones. I think the themes here are it's the end of the Iceman, right? It's the end of, of the Goose. So he's a two-time U.S. <laughs> Open winner. Won 2004, and my recollection of Retief Goose was like, God, this guy's unflappable. Like, he just is so boring, and you can't he, – he's just not going to blow it, and it's just going to be, like, slow and steady. One oh oh two and oh four, right? Oh, I think oh, oh one and oh, oh, one one and oh four. Sorry. Yeah, so this is going for his uh, back-to-back. Just so the haters and losers don't come after you, uh, Michael Campbell is Maury, not Samoan. Oh okay. Yeah. Well, I thought I I was looking at I was talking about the shirt. Well, I if they do, yeah. he, we recognize that he's he's um, more. My, that's my mistake. Yeah. I was just kind of describing. It might the be shirt. a Samoan shirt. It might be. Yeah, but that's fair. You're. We'll, I should we'll check. confirm the, the origin was, of the shirt. Honestly, the shirt is something I would wear. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Okay. I just, your persona non grata in Scotland. From I know Andy I know. Murray I and Sandy Lyle incident. So I yeah. need to. The bottom line is the shirt is sweet. <laughs> that's, that, let's get to the. To the root, that's the point of what I said, okay? No offense to anyone. The uh, So you got the end of the goose. You have the heartbreak kid, Jason Gore. So Retief Goosen, what does he enter the uh, U.S. Open that year, world ranking? Three. Uh, seven. Five. Five. Boom. So he's the fifth-ranked player in the world. I was going to say three. He's, <laughs> I'm glad I I mean, he's third. going for his third straight. He's he's at, you know, probably is the peak of his career uh, this season. He finishes the season of 2005 – uh, he finishes T11, so you know there's no secret here. Uh, but he finished. That was his worst major finish of the year. Uh, let's see. Whoa. He finished T3 at the Masters, T5 at the Open, T6 at the PGA. Whoa! But you know, never wins another major. Only wins two more tournaments after this. He wins the International that year, and then he wins the uh, Transition Championship. Uh, now the Valspar. Shout in, out KB. Shout out in uh, you know 2009, right in any light. Transition lenses. Uh, How about that commercial with uh, like Kenny Perry, and all, and all those Perry. guys grilling out? A, a historic commercial. <laughs> Maybe one of the best. I think that made its way into an uh, NLU preview. They're too, grilling the out. They got the sunglasses on and they walk and, in the door. And, they, and the, they switch to it's the, oh. the best. Uh, so, <laughs> what a great commercial if you're still recalling yeah, so oh, it. A proud winner yeah. of the Transitions Championship. His last, Shout his out last, uh, last professional win. So Gore, you know, the storyline, Gore comes in, qualifies, I think, opening qualifying, gets his car broken into, like, all his worldly possessions because are stolen. Because is he sleeping in the car at this point? I don't know. No, he was in a hotel. Oh, okay. Because uh, I was watching the YouTube recap, and he, his wife comes in from the car. She's crying. She's like, everything's gone. His radio's, like, ripped out. So he, he doesn't have his credentials or anything. And all the security guards are like, who are you, dude? You're not playing. And so he has to call, like, the officials. You know, they, he can hardly get in the gates. And then he goes out and just... He's just balling out in basically rounds one through three. How old is he at this point? Do we know? I'm not I sure. I can look it up. I'm not sure. So uh, first round leaders, Olin Brown and Rocco at minus three. Second round, Olin, Retief, and Jason Gore at minus two. And then third round, Retief is three shots clear, minus three. Let's see. Who's at even par? I think it's uh, Jason Gore. Gore is 31, I, by the way. Thank you. Uh, Olin Brown, Jason Gore at, at even, and Michael Campbell, Mark Hensby, 
are at plus one going into the final round. And Goosen, he birdies the last three holes on Saturday. So he, he manskies back to back to back and just takes all the momentum into to Sunday. So think about that, right? Like you got a guy that won it the year before. He's known as being, at least in my mind, the Iceman. It's like, then this is over. Like it was a foregone conclusion. Yeah, it he is. He was going to waltz. It's, the guy is just... He's just going to walk right to the to the trophy. How he won those U.S. Opens just making six-footer, six-footer, exactly. six-footer, six, like on repeat. With no I, I with definitely no had, a, had a yes putter because of, yeah. because of him. Yeah, he had no emotion either, right? He's just kind of a quick wave. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead, Randy. No, a couple things. One, I think it's important to point out he was struck by lightning. I, I always <laughs> really enjoyed that anecdote. Uh, and you have to want, like, it, did that change his No, they say it changed his personality. Because yeah, he apparently he was very fiery when yeah, he was younger. Which is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't say that flippantly. And then the other thing about Gore, when I was looking up his age here, just a quick shout out one of his main haunts was Vista Valencia. Shut the fuck yeah, up. Yeah, Matt, Max I talked won't. about that. <laughs> I won't. Really? Max said he used yeah. to go out and play with, with Gore out there. So he was up. he was beaten up like the California oh, sorry, State AMs and the California talking, State Open. I looked away stuff. for a second. I thought you were talking about Ratif Goose. <laughs> no, no, sorry. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> really? No, Jason Gore, yes. Oh. He like set up the junior program. He like yeah. did all that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. All that stuff I, I got. Oh, so God. you can only imagine? You know, no shit. They were both hanging out there? A, a young and they filmed the office there too. Yeah. Max Homo was probably in the uh, the snack shack with the you know getting his orange pop and burger watching orange the, freeze I the U.S. Open. Yeah. So and I, if one of you, uh, Solly, if you can look up, I don't know the odds of. I can, I, yeah, I, I can do that. I for think you. that would help place. <laughs> I could be that one. Man Michael for you. Campbell getting crowned at two. Like what the, you know, maybe what Vegas thought of how much of a foregone conclusion. Michael would be Campbell that, was killing that, it on the international scene leading into this. He would be one of the people that Solly would be railing against for being, for being an OWGR <laughs> manipulator, and then he came in and won. And he then he a, got crowned. He was fluffering. So Michael Campbell was, believe it or not, 6-1 to one to win the U.S. Open. That's wild. On because the, he was not listed. <laughs> on what hole? Oh, and was part of the field. Oh, wow. How about that? That's unreal. What was Tiger four to one? Phil eight to one. Ernie Els nine to one. VJ nine to one. Retief twelve. I wonder if all the okay. U.S. bookmakers gave people their money back after Michael Campbell won. I, I'm sure they did. <laughs> like, this was an oversight by us, and this is just not fair to you guys. So final round, it's it's uh, the Goose and Jason Gore paired with each other, and it just it's over before it starts. I think Goose and doubles the first hole. Uh, he drops. Six shots in the first nine holes, and then starting on twelve, he cards five straight bogeys to to shoot Jesus. eighty-one and finish eleventh. I then, think the final group got dropped in coverage. They that did, day. no, hundred yeah. percent. And then uh, <laughs> paired with Goosen, Jason Gore shot fourteen over eighty-four. Oof. And then of the three, get three get of the, out. I mean, it was a, it was just a complete vaporization. The two, three of the four in the two final groups shot eighty. Olin Brown shot. Shot over 80. So Owen Brown shot 80 as well. And then Michael Campbell shot 69. Can you imagine the energy? I'm just trying to put myself like playing in that final group, the energy in that final group. <laughs> yeah. at well, no, and I like mean, how much fun I was not having, right? When you're just getting kicked in the teeth at Pinehurst and, uh, you know, the guy you're playing was getting kicked, like that had to be like, oh, there's a the death highlights. March. It's like Gore, Gore's getting deep, you know, he's chipping, rolling back to his feet on number three. And then his quote is like, yeah, you know, once I, I dropped two shots on the, the first three, 
I started. Pre- I was like, I got to go get it now. And he's just like, <laughs> <laughs> like I got, I got aggressive, and that's not what you let's, do on that course. Let's cue those, uh, those Ghana Paul Bears. Yeah, at that like, point. <laughs> he's like, yeah, yeah, that's that's not what you can do on number two. I think I'm gonna start pressing. <laughs> Dude. So that was that. That's Dude. in the YouTube, that's the uh, U.S. Open highlights. It's like, oh no, 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 you can't do that. So he just starts trying to flag it, and it doesn't go well. Um, and and basically, the highlight show, like on on the front nine, Goosen's like leaving fifty foot putts, like fifteen feet short, and just kind of like shaking his head, like it just, you know, it's really, it's just not your day. Yeah, I, I mean, he and his quote, like so. To your point, like his quote after the round was like, I played like rubbish. <laughs> he doesn't say it. He's just like, yeah, I, I gassed it. I blew it. Like, you know, doesn't the guy doesn't have much to say. So, uh, but at least they had um, the cat charging. So cat makes three birdies on the back nine, uh, shoots 69. Yeah, that's right. Right. So there was some drama to the tournament. Michael Campbell makes an awesome birdie on 17, hits a great shot. And then there's a good highlight of the, uh, his putt, like rolling end over end with the line. You know, it's just like, it's going in from the start. It's like a 20-footer. But I, I think the combination of Kusin and Gore collapsing, you got, like, the heartbreak of of the people's champion, Gore. Everyone's – like, he, Gore also qu- is quoted in that video saying, like, we're coming off the first tee, and everyone's just chanting my name. Not one person is chanting for Retief Goosen. She's like, I almost felt bad, right? So you have, like <laughs> – So I shoot 84 yeah, to help yeah, him out so, a little no, bit. No, so he's like – everybody's <laughs> devastated that Gore just, you know, completely uh, – vaporizes himself and then Retief Goose and the, they both just you know free fall down the leaderboard and then and then on top of that Felix Baumgartner yeah and I'm coming home everyone I'm coming home and then, and then uh, but it, but so combine that with how unexpected it is from a guy like Goose right. and then how it almost basically like ends his career and not ends his career because he ends up yeah. having a good year but that's kind of like you don't really hear much from him after that your collapse is the only one that's Quick and fast. That's what I mean. <laughs> off the, it's off over. The start. It's like the first race of a Grand Prix. And, yeah. So and and we're racing at Pinehurst. Oh my god! There's a crash on the first turn. Hulkenberg. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, that's <laughs> that's <laughs> such a good observation, Neil. I want to harken back to what I said at the beginning of this: is that you play a lot better golf than me, and that's why you're in the position to crumble a lot more. So let me let me preface it with that. But that observation is so good that I can't think of one time where Neil's ever been like, God, I'm, I'm almost holding it together, man, and I'm in the fight of my life, and I'm just I'm really battling, and I'm battling, and I'm battling. It's just one spectacular moment. And that is uh, a, that's an excellent observation. Well, we're going to keep pushing for that mountaintop. <laughs> exactly. Okay? Your, your hate fuels me, Deej. I'm no, still laughing. No, just purely a, a scholarly observation. I'm still laughing at Jason Gorsay. I'm going to go get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then you combine so, so you combine that with with Houston and then also combine it with like the most forgotten winner of the yeah. last like 40 years it's like oh, oh god then this guy no offense to Michael Campbell he played well but complete no anyone. complete crowning is there another oh my god, god that's such a good I'm very glad you picked this. Like, this is a rich the combination topic. of all those things. Yeah. Is to me, it was like yeah. that's a that's is, that's an easy one. Is there a comp for Jason Gore at any other majors? Like the kind of like folk hero, like John Daly, but well, not, my other one, not I had quite a, that. I had a second cartoonish. one, and we could talk about it in honorable mention. But I had Jason Duffner at the 2012. That's interesting. PGA 11. 
2011, which we attended at That's Atlanta right. Athletic Club. That's right. And I remember seeing him on, I think we were on seven or eight. We watched him tee off. And I, I think I said something to you and Tron, like, who is this guard? <laughs> like, I like his, like, I love his waggle. Like, this guy, I'd never heard of him. And I was immediately like, I'm rooting for this guy. Yeah. And he came out of nowhere, That's a good underdog. One. That one doesn't kind get of, enough attention. No, totally. It's like five a five shot. <laughs> five on 15. Yeah. And he watches Keegan uh, hit it in the bunker, thin it into the water, triple bogey, and then he steps up and hits it in the water and makes double. And then from there, he just kind of slowly bleeds sweet it out. Sweet tournament. Yeah. And that was Keegan the, the wins playoff. The playoff was sweet though. Yeah, they, awesome. they actually started throwing darts. So, so that, that was, conclusion. That was yeah. That's it. So. Well done. That was Great a lot stuff. of fun. That was a, that was awesome. All right. Well, we are going to uh, as teased in the beginning. We are going to be discussing maybe the most famous collapse of uh, I, w- I would say the defining collapse of our generation, as far as us as golf fans. When you think of a golf a collapse, I think of Norman at the Masters. I don't know where you guys fall in that. It's interesting. It's that or Vandeveld. I think for Vandeveld for me, I'm a little. I feel like yeah. Uh, I I can't remember watching this live. Yeah, that's where I'm at. I I remember. Uh, I think uh, like academically, I agree with you, but I also can't remember sitting there and watching it. I think when you say like what comes to mind, it would be more like Rory for me at the okay. at the Masters. Yeah. Well, maybe that I would. I chose just speed. Or, or, or just honestly, me. speed too. <laughs> Or speed, yeah. right? Those are probably my top three. Well, I I think what Vandeveld's a good example there of, but like for Norman, this was basically the end. I mean, this this was like, all right, it's time for you to finally do it. The speed collapse again doesn't fit the narrative because he won it the year before and it, he won a major after that. But this was like, all right, dude, this is your time, and it didn't happen, and it was uh, so much buildup. Vandeveld came out of nowhere, and this was like anticipation. It is time to watch the coronation of Greg Norman. And it didn't happen. It really did not. So let's go back to 96. Going in, he's the number one player in the world. I think he is. I actually didn't even look that up. Uh, nine to one favorite. I hope the Scots jump all over me that way. <laughs> nine to one favorite, Nick Faldo, second on the board at 12 to one, along with Ernie Els. So first thing I found out that I did not know did not know. Uh, maybe I just forgot it. It's been 24 years. Wednesday, before the tournament begins, Norman's back is so bad, he can only take half swings on the golf course. Cuts his practice session short. He would later credit Fred Couples, physical therapist, with an 11th hour visit that would address the issues that were plaguing him all week long. So, interesting. Going in to this. I wonder if it's that, if that same doctor was working on Fino when he shattered his ankle. <laughs> He's That's a shot. The part three. It's Mr. Miyagi. So when you were talking about Palmer, uh, Arnold Palmer coming into the 66 US Open claiming he wasn't putting well, maybe this is kind of revisionist history of like, all right, what were the signs that things weren't great? But this was the first thing I thought of was like his health wasn't quite there. So he hadn't been practicing, you know, full speed, I don't think going up into it. And so we go fast forward to Thursday. The LA Times describes Greg Norman's opening round as follows. He looked like a pirate with his blonde hair flowing, his black hat shoved down on his head, and the sun gleaming off his silver irons that could have easily been broadswords. There was Greg Norman swaggering through Augusta National on opening day at the Masters, cutting the place down to size, and sailing off with the first round lead. Super committed to the pirate <laughs> metaphor. 
He opens with six straight pars and birdies nine pars. of his last. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Seemed like a laugh. If you're going to do it, you might as well do it. <laughs> we're, in, we're in quote for the LA oh, Times. Okay, uh, sorry. I thought we were still in there. Six straight pars. <laughs> Birdie's nine of his last 12, including six of his last seven and the final two to tie the lowest round in major championship history leads Phil Mickelson by two. Nine under par. So where I take from that is like, oh, this kind of came out of nowhere for him. He was not necessarily lined up to play this well. And he said afterward, I just let it flow. Wait, he birdied nine. Nine of the last 12. To go nine under in round one. Yes. Whew. So he said afterward, Jeez, I just let it flow. When you get into that type of role I got into today, hey, let it happen. Let the reins of the horse go and let him run as fast as he wants to run. A lot of metaphors. Gonna be all these, all this horsepower, to, you, no room to gallop, baby. You, want, you need to start talking like this, Neil. Exactly. Like the strap wrap <laughs> Just wild <laughs> metaphors. Okay. I, that's c- c- constructive feedback. I'll, I'll write some stuff down. I'll workshop a few. And another reason I wanted to make sure we covered this one is this also represents like the full spectrum of golf in a four-day period because he opens with 63 and out. Spoiler alert, he closes with 78. You go on that quote of let it go, just let the horses, let it run wild, let it flow. Yo, eventually they're going to run out of gas. Yes. <laughs> or they're just going to run away. <laughs> now you can't play no more. The horses need hay. Uh, and they were being very underfed. So it, it is. it's an obvious collapse, but like... Again, it is. We are at the peak of golf in the beginning of this to just not being able to find the club. Just couldn't get any hay. <laughs> uh, so, so wheat. Greg Norman was in fact ranked number one at this point. Thank God. Um, <laughs> told you. <laughs> Monty was ranked number two, and and I think one thing I think is important that we all understand is that this was pre-Tiger. This was pre-Tiger, <laughs> but he was playing in this. But that's true. But really, I mean, come on, this is pre-Tiger. He's what a sophomore in college. This is his last one as an AM. So, yes. Right. Junior in college. Oh, sophomore in college. Junior. <clears throat> okay. He went pro after. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Junior year. He's in the crow's right. nest. I right. think. Yeah. Is sure. he in the crow's nest? Uh, I don't know. He might have only done that. Th- a lot of people only do that the first time. And then they're first, like, yeah, I'm for good one night. That. They don't yeah. say like one night. It's like, okay, this sucks. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, apparently it's, it's, you're up there with like more than one person. It's like a bunk room. And like alarm clocks, if you have an afternoon tea time and somebody's teeing off in the morning, like alarm clocks mm-hmm. go off. And so. Tough scene. Anyways, <laughs> Augusta might be more uh, more legend <laughs> than actual like substance. But Friday, uh, the shark cruises through the water to a three under par <laughs> a, uh, 69. To a three under par. Fins <laughs> <Yeah>. up. <laughs> Including a shot on the 12th that hits the bank and sticks. Oh, oh it's, is it a metaphor? Yeah. Is it his time? Nobody talks about that. Or not a metaphor. <laughs> Nobody a talks about it. Augusta did not shave the bank that year. So uh, Nick Faldo shoots a 67, but Norman goes into the weekend with a four-shot lead. Norman and Faldo are paired together in that final group. Uh, again, four-shot gap for that Saturday. We head to Saturday, playing with, of course, Mr. Nick Faldo, as I just mentioned. Greg Norman shoots a 71 to Nick Faldo's 73. He stares him down, expanding his lead to six shots. Now the fun begins. Quest, s- well, sorry, don't sure. want to interrupt your vibe, but Faldo and... Norman, did they get along? Yes, by all, but basically by all accounts, I could. I but could definitely tell. rivals in this in this period. Rival-ish, yeah. So they've had two run, prior run-ins at the Open Championship. Norman had a shot at him in 1990 at the Old Course, I believe, and Faldo got the best of him, and Norman beat him. I think Faldo finished second in '93 
when Norman won, but it wasn't really like a showdown between the two of them. But it's not it's not a bitter rivalry, but they're two of the biggest names in the game at this point. Uh, understatement of the century, but feels like needs to be said because of how much we rip on TV. Faldo won a Menace. lot. <laughs> Faldo won so much. Menace. And, and big, big mitts, too. <laughs> huge big hands. Mitts. Unbelievably huge hands. <laughs> and we'll get to some of what really makes this more interesting to rewatch than you might think it would be um, here in a second. But on Saturday night, again, six-shot lead, Norman bumped into uh, esteemed British golf writer Peter Doberiner. Doberiner? Couldn't be hope that. the Scots you, jump you, all over you for that one. You better make sure. You, yeah, <laughs> couldn't be that esteemed if I've never heard the name before. But oh, uh, oh, oh. you hear that? Uh, then a who was then a Golf Digest contributor in the bathroom at Augusta National, and Doberiner says, "Well, Greg, not even you can fuck this up now." Jesus. <laughs> to that I would While say, he's taking a leak, come on, man. <laughs> to that I would say, really. <laughs> Oh, um, oh, yeah, watch me. <laughs> it, from Rick Riley, he says, uh, this is in his wrap-up piece, if you had been there the night before, you would not have believed what would transpire in less than 24 hours. In Saturday's third round, Norman had stared down Faldo heroically, played him head-to-head and increased his lead from four to six shots. Afterward, Norman relaxed in the dark of Augusta's first-floor locker room, the one reserved for non-champions. He had been the last one on the golf course, and the attendant had turned out the lights and gone home. Norman didn't know how to turn them back on, and he just sat there in the dark, happily drained. Your last night in this locker room, a friend had told him. And Norman said, damn, I hope so. So two people say this to him on Saturday night before he leaves. I want to go back to the sports writer quote because it's a great one. And I wonder how much, if you asked him about it like now, I wonder how much uh, Norman thinks about that moment, and I wonder how much the sports writer thinks about that moment and who's assigning more value to this this interaction just for what that's worth. Okay. (laughs) It could be one of those moments where the sports writer's like, oh, that's what it was. And Norm was like, I don't even remember that. What are you talking about? <laughs> Who are you? Uh, I maybe th- not. I think it, uh, I, I could be wrong here, but I think it was like Norman that recounted some of this stuff as to like things that were happening the night okay. before. But now, follow this one, try to follow this one closely because this is what, this, this is the stunner to me. And I couldn't wait to share this with you guys. To one observer, I messed up where I got this from, so I apologize. It's from I, I was reading Golf Digest, uh, a lot of Golf World stuff, a lot of random places. But anyways, to one observer, the Sunday implosion wasn't a surprise at all. At the beginning of the week, CBS's Peter Costas noticed that Norman was experimenting with a stronger grip on the practice range. A grip change to a golfer is like learning a new language. The day after Norman's opening 63, Costas noticed Norman's grip on the club had slightly weakened, and he hadn't hit the balls precisely, but still shot 69 to increase his lead to four. The trend continued in the third round. By Costas's accounting, Norman's grip was back to where it was before the week began and was still missing shots to both sides of the fairway. Thanks to his chipping and putting, he still shot 71. So we're starting to get to the root of how you go from shooting 63 to shooting 78. Uh, I have no idea how much of this is revisionist history, blah, blah, blah. But back to it. This is a quote from Peter Costas. Were it not for some phenomenal short game work, he could have shot 78 or 80. But as it was, he left the golf course with a six-shot lead. Everybody thought he was playing better, and I saw someone reverting to form who was in trouble. You can't play any golf course with a two-way miss, and especially not Augusta National. So... On Saturday night, when walking back to the TV compound, Costas bumps into a Golf Channel reporter who asked him what he thought of Norman's chances in claiming his first Masters. It was a casual exchange that Costas thought was off the record, so he had, 
So he said he feared Norman was in for a long day based on his erratic ball striking in the third round. He didn't think anything of the conversation until he showed up Sunday morning and was accosted by Frank Cherkinian, then the executive producer of CBS's golf coverage and a good friend of Norman's. This is a quote from Costas. He says, Frank yells at me. Did you tell the whole world that Greg was going to choke and not win the Masters? Greg wants to put his hands on your throat. Casas, only that's end quote. Only then did Casas realize that his remarks about Norman Swing made their way onto the air, that the Masters leader got wind of it and called Cherkinian to complain hours before his tea time, spoke to the fragile state of Norman's mind. <laughs> he called Frank Cherkinian to bitch about Casas's comments hours before his tea time on Sunday. I had not heard this. I had no idea of this. I texted. That he's Costas already lost about, it. I texted Casas about this. He's like hundred percent true story. He verified this. So I, um, Costas said, I said to Frank, if he's if all he's got to do on the most important golf day of his life is call you, he's not in a good place. <laughs> That's well said. Yes. <laughs> Twenty years later, Norman doesn't disagree. I know deep. I knew deep down Sunday morning I wasn't feeling great. I was completely off. Oh. So now we're bridging the gap into Sunday. Frank Williams, Norman's agent at the time, was so convinced his client would cruise to victory. He had bet $10,000 on Norman to win at 14 to 1 odds before the tournament. Offered a $100,000 buyout on Saturday night, Williams declined. He had started, which, I mean, yeah, it, you're basically right. sitting, passing up on 40K. Um, How many is he leading by going in the six? You got to feel pretty good, right? <laughs> <laughs> Until you get to this next part. He had started eight previous majors with the Sunday lead, he had won one of those titles, the 86 mm. British Open. Sunday morning, Greg wakes God, up. God, that's a tough stat. It's <laughs> a oh, very tough stat. God, that's a tough stat. Which gets beyond, like, there's some bad luck in there, and then you're going to get to some things that he, this guy was not there mentally, oh. which he already has touched on. Sunday morning, he wakes up. His back is barking. He tells Butch Harmon on the way of the course, like, this is not going to be easy. I couldn't sleep. He later told sports psychologist Rick Jensen, I'm probably the only guy in the world who thinks, I don't know if I can hold it. I didn't sleep a wink. I could feel it. My swing wasn't there. And I said to Butch, I was off. And Butch said, no, everything looks great. And I said, no, Butch, it's not great. I can feel it. <laughs> Butch, I can't do it. I can't hit the shot. It's like much more of a Captain Phillips situation at this time than, than a pirate situation. Norman would also intimate later that there was a personal issue going on. I, I don't know if that ever came to light as to what it was. I couldn't find it. And I'm, it may be out there. I didn't dig too deep to try to find it. But there's some kind of marital personal issue going on at that time he's basically he'd insinuated i can't talk to you about this even to his closest closest people and, and this is from golf digest and and sam weinman's book win at losing how our biggest setbacks can lead to our greatest gains it says although Harmon could immediately detect a difference he says his objective at that point was to try to soothe the player's nerves when i mentioned the personal issue that norman says he was consumed with Harmon nods knowingly the two men have never spoken about it, but Harmon says he'll one day he'll get around to asking. Quote from Harmon, I've always said one night he and I are going to get drunk somewhere and I was going to say, okay, what the fuck happened Sunday? He's never told Caddy Tony Navarro and I what it was, but we know something was wrong because we were both standing there saying, who is this guy? This is not the guy who left last night. What was that book? Win at Losing? Win at Losing. Ask, asking for a friend. <laughs> How our biggest... <laughs> I might glance at it. 
Norman said his day could have been salvaged had he been honest with Harmon and Navarro about what was really going on, but he never did. And by the time the fir- uh, he missed the first fairway in route to an opening bogey, there was no turning back. He said, I should have turned to them and just purged. It would have taken 10 minutes and it would have been over with, but I didn't do it. So the lesson there is don't harbor things internally. Don't push the elephant under the rug. Anxiety and happiness both come from within. And so you have to ask, which one do you prefer? So now, like hearing all this, now think about when guys have to wait until 2.45 for their Sunday p.m. tea time at the Masters, like all the things that are going through your mind and all the things that are happening. And this makes me understand the speed thing in 2016 way more, whereas like he was not confident with his swing. So now you just have hours and hours to either like pound range balls to figure it out. Or how do you figure it out? I don't know. Just try not to think about the only thing you're thinking yes, about. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so ESPN's Dan Patrick said on Sunday, if he blows this, it will be the Coll- colleague of ours. biggest collapse <laughs> in modern golf history. So as he mentioned, Norman bogeys the opening hole, but he birdies the second. And I'm sure, I'm sure Norman was watching. Like probably sports center or whatever. When he said that probably called the ESPN producer to to bitch about it. But (laughs) Faldo also birdies the second. So the lead is five. And after pars on the third, Norman has this to say about the fourth happened on that Sunday. Um, When I reflect on it it was like this first, the shot into the fourth hole, the par three. And I thought I I put a good swing on it. When the ball came up short and that should have been my first sign that my timing was not there because the ball came up short four or five or six feet and I finished in the front bunker. And I hit right where I wanted to hit it, right down the line I wanted to hit it, but my timing wasn't there. So that's the first hint, the first thing you'll see. And if you hear that quote and then go watch the highlights, you're like, oh dude, you were short all day, all day. Just short, short, short. So he bogeys the fourth, the lead is four. Faldo bogeys the fifth in my head. I always thought that Faldo was bogey free that day, but it's also worth noting. I don't know why, but just wanted to point this out. Faldo is in the middle of a $12 million divorce and a tabloid frenzy over his relationship with the 21 year old Brenna Sapelic, a former Arizona golfer, which if you really want to go down that Google wormhole, that is, there is a story there. You should swing by his house and ask him about it. Yeah. Listen, don't talk about my neighbor like that. Okay. <laughs> Is this the talk of the neighborhood? It right is now? the talk of the hood. <laughs> Faldo birdies the sixth and the eighth. So Norman's lead is three, but Norman's only one over on the day. It's not really going that poorly just yet. And he tries to muscle up a wedge into the ninth green. Number nine was where it really showed because I'm only 102 yards, I think it was, something like that anyway, uh, to the green, to the flag, and I come up three feet. Now, three feet's an enormous amount over a sand wedge shot. So the situation there was a green light to me. I mean, I had a green light. I felt like I was still playing pretty good and no gremlins were in my head. I felt fine, let's just hit the shot that you know you can hit. I came up shy of my target. That was, to me, an indication that my swing was not the way it was. So from there on in, everything's history. So that quote I wanted to include because that's the first time I hear him reference gremlins. And that it seems like, it's just like, all right, my swing's not really there to this point, but that shot coming up short is where things really turned. So he bogeys, and now his lead is, I believe, just now two. He bogeys the 10th. He, like, blades a very easy chip by the flag, misses the eight-foot comebacker. Now we get to 11. This is kind of when I when I fast-forward and started watching. So he's got a 15-foot birdie putt on 11. He runs it by the hole and misses the comebacker from three feet, which is another bogey. This part of the process takes two minutes and 47 seconds. 
he like goes to stand over his ball, and I don't, I have not. This watched. is the three footer or the whole, the, like, whole, the whole from the three put from the, the time it becomes putt. his turn. It takes two minutes and forty seven seconds for him to hold out, which is like excruciating. Honestly, I I watched it the first time and I was like, how long did that take? Because that felt like forever. And I thought it feels like longer because it's a it's a fifteen foot putt. It's not a crazy one. And he's like regripping, regrip, like super trying so hard to like loosen his arms. And you can tell in his head, he's just like, be cool, be calm, like stop being nervous. Like just you got be this. Cool, man. Just be cool. And it like it it was uncomfortable to watch. And it, the lead is now gone going into the 12th. Lost. Okay. We've lost. It's it, gone. It indeed was on the edge. So uh, they move on to the 12th. Riley calls it the uh, Drew Barrymore of par threes, small, gorgeous, and sheer trouble. <laughs> Riley might be gone at this time. As well. <laughs> and that was our first moment when we saw Riley was on the edge as well. So this is where, uh, so Faldo hits a, an approach shot safely onto the green. No, so this is where, if I can sidebar for a second here, it gets super extra frustrating uh, with where golf coverage has gotten. And like everyone's on this mic up the players bit right now. There's no mics on the players at this point, but there are boom mics down there. And the announcers, Get the hell out of the way. And you hear the conversation between Faldo and Fanny Sunnison, and they talk about their shot they're going to hit, and now it turns to Norman's turn. And Navarro, Tony Navarro, who's Norman's caddy, you can just hear him just like audibly tell him, hit it directly over the bunker. Ken Venturi says, hit it over the bunker here, Greg. You can't win it here, but you can lose it. Sets his feet, and it takes him, after his feet are set, it takes him 20 seconds to pull the trigger. Sorry, which hole are we on here? 12. Okay. This is Drew 12. Barrymore. Right, 12, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it takes him 20 I, seconds. I was researching what year Gremlins came out, okay. which was 1984, the year of Norman's first win. Um, <laughs> Coincidence? Stands over the shot, you can guess what happens. Queefs it right, <laughs> short, hits the bank, into the water, double bogey. So he gives five shots back in four holes. Faldo makes nothing but pars in that stretch and now leads by two. So this is, again, where the the drama of, like, Frank Cherkinian being a producer of golf, like, the camera doesn't leave Greg Norman. They don't cut away to, like, something else happened on 15. It's like we are following him walk across the bridge. We are zooming in on his face. We That's what I remember about that Sunday. I was ten, not, not quite 10 years old, but just the anguish of, like, Oh my God, we're going to see the whole thing. Like, we're going to see <laughs> it's a snuff film. the entire torture like zoomed in so it never leaves them. And that the drama, because the guys are barely talking, but they're just like speaking about the enormity of the moment, but just like letting it breathe, which was wild. So um, <laughs> 12 but, is such a good place for that too, like yes. at Augusta, because it turns into, I know the players like it sometimes because, you know, 12 and then 13T, you're away from everybody. But I think in that moment, it almost becomes like they're a, lonely, a zoo animal. Yeah, it's like know? the loneliest place on the yeah, course. And it's like, oh, shit, like everybody's just staring at me now. Yeah. Um, so before Norman tees off on 13, a bird just goes off with several chirps directly into a mic, or they pipe this in. And Venturi goes, I thought they killed all the birds. Wasn't there like no birds that fly over Augusta? Isn't that a whole conspiracy? I think that's squirrels. There's no squirrels on no the squirrels. Ground. I don't think there's many birds either. Maybe that. Maybe this could have been what... Cause well, that. Anyways, they might have wiped them all out after that. The bird chirps directly in the mic, and Venturi goes, "You're right, birdie at worst." <laughs> uh, where's that pirate guy? Bring the pirate guy back. Really bad. Um, so Norman hits it up on the pine straw. He's got 213 yards, and they again they never leave the conversation. They they there is a mic on there, and it is back and forth with he, with he and Navarro, and like Greg has hit five greens to this point and is trying to hit it off pine straw 
over the water on the green. And Navarro's like, lay it up, lay it up, lay it up. Walks him through it, convinces him to lay it up. Then they go to Faldo, who's in the fairway. He takes three and a half minutes to play his shot. He takes a wood out, backs off of it, gets set, backs off of it again, reaches for an iron, and Ken Venturi thinks he's laying up, and Faldo just stripes a long iron onto the green and two putts for birdie. And so this right here is like what, if, for the technology debate, like that moment, those watching those two guys think of those shots is the, the conversation that people are having on technology. And that Phil, when he's underneath the tree in the pine straw at the Masters in 2010, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going for it. It's a six iron. And Norman couldn't hit it on from 213 and had to go through this exercise. And like the drama of like, wait, is Faldo going to lay up or go for it? Like with a five wood or a two iron was very real. Like it's, it's theater. Like go back and watch it if you can fast forward the three and a half minutes. But <laughs> Norman gets up and down for birdie on, uh, on 13. And then we go to 15. He kind of hits this another queefy little shot out to the right. It, he was lucky it didn't go in the water with his second shot. Stops short, hits the chip that almost goes in. And he just like rolls on the ground. Um, the announcers are like, yep, yeah, first time he's shown emotion all day. They both make birdie. He's two down, going to 16. Faldo does what he does, hits the center of the green. Norman comes up, takes forever over it yet again. High, chunky <laughs> shot, short and left, wet, huge gasp in the gallery, and Vern delivers his eulogy. Like, it was it was, it was over at that <gasps> point. So. God, I've hit that shot so many times. Is there anything worse than just, like, the fat left <laughs> Short ball, like, oh. I don't know. I think the quick left maybe is no the thin right weak <laughs> queef is a little bit more frustrating. But you can play that one at sixteen <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Faldo would say I could feel the nerv- nervousness emanating from Greg. He gripped and regripped the club as though he could not steal himself to hit the ball. After Faldo rolled in a final birdie at eighteen, Faldo hits a sick wedge out of the bunker. Um, and makes birdie. He hugged Norman. He told Norm, uh, Norman he was sorry. And then knowing what was ahead, he said, don't let the bastards get you down. Referring to the media because of what Norman was about to enter. After the round, Norman said, it's all on me. I know that. But losing the Masters is not the end of the world. I let this one get away. But I still have a pretty good life. I'll wake up tomorrow still breathing, I hope. All these hiccups I have, they must be for a reason. All this is just a test. I just don't know what the test is yet. You can read that in a much more demonstrative tone. It's like, I still got, look at look at my life. Like I'm still winning. I don't care about this. You know, stories kind of conflict on his mindset uh, going into the round. But here's something that he uh, that he said afterward. I wouldn't change a thing. Even when I can even remember walking to the first tee to this moment, I felt totally in control. I felt you know a little excited, like everybody would feel. You know, your adrenaline was flowing. But I would never felt out of control until the until the tournament started unraveling around about the ninth hole. What is that feeling like? Oh, horrible! I've never experienced that before in my life. Oh, it's great. <laughs> never in my life. And it's awful when you start experiencing something that you never experienced at that moment, at that time when you have to put a bandaid on it or some sutures in there to get this job done. And I really didn't have a bandaid or a suture to do it. That goes back to the deep dive on Norman. He seems like the king of the revisionist. Thoughts. It's like one that definitely has happened to you before. It happened in the U.S. <laughs> Open twice in the '80s, and two, I don't know. You wouldn't have changed a thing. Uh, yeah, like exactly. not one, not yeah. one thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, according to Golf Week, again, this is probably I should have said this at the beginning, but going into the Masters, Norman was ranked 149th in greens regulation, so he wasn't necessarily striping the ball. Uh, Norman would say it's a mental flaw caused by a physical flaw. Going into the Masters, I was playing terribly. I had lost control of my ball. 
Norman said, Butch, I can't go into the Masters hitting it like this. And Harmon said, Greg, we don't have time to make a swing change. Use your course management. Use your short game. Oh, God, what a fucking horrible feeling. Yeah, I don't know, man. Just... You'll be all right. <laughs> just go, just figure it out. Like you, you'll be fine. Well, so listen. I wouldn't. Don't even think about it. Like, well, that's, I think that's <laughs> just, just go, honestly. You know, that's kind of how be all, fine. all of us play golf. Totally. Yeah, but the, but not for the not for the yeah, not different stage. The different stage. So Norm <laughs> Jensen, the sports psychologist, again, this is a Golf Week article. Said, uh, really, how bad could you be hitting it? All your iron shots were going right at the flag. And Norman said, you don't know where I was aiming. <laughs> I was hitting it so badly I didn't go for a single pin. I would aim 12 yards to the right of the hole, and then I would pull it to two feet. Every ball that went crooked seemed to go crooked towards the hole. And on Sunday, every ball I aimed over there went over there. I aimed crooked. They went crooked. God, so. that's, that's so good. Like, then, that's, that's, so that, well, that quote explains the, the move at 12. Well, get this. Reconstructing the final <laughs> nine, Norman explained to Jensen, I said to myself, Forget Butch. I'm going to fix this thing. I started tinkering with my swing on the back nine. That was the mental mistake I made. The physical mistake, of course, was that I wasn't prepared going in. I want to give a shout out yeah, to Yeah, I was going to say, can you, can you hit the Ghana guys for me? Yeah, yeah, fuck Butch. <laughs> I got this. I want to give a shout out to a friend of the program, uh, Big Play Ray, who once tried to switch his swing to stack and tilt mid-round. <laughs> Which sounds very similar to this. Uh, I, I, again, that wasn't at the Masters. So I, I want to quickly circle back on Peter Doberiner. Yeah. Uh, I think we probably older, undersold him a little bit. He seems to be like a very titan of, of golf. God, I hope the Scots jump I'm all sure over you. Will. But no, what's interesting is at the time he said that to Greg Norman, uh, Peter was 88 years old. And he would die later that year. He died in August of 1996. So he could say what do you say? Coincidence? No, I, I'm just he saying. He can say whatever like, he wants. One, yeah. Carte Blanche to say whatever he wants. And uh, He must be like the, the the British version of Dan Jenkins, I would imagine. Yes, he's got like two books on the Golf Digest, like 50 books you have to read. So he, he very exceptional, uh, very important golf Potential writer. reading room? Book? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I, I hadn't. I honest, yeah. hand to God, though, I had not heard the name. So Same. that's that's a different generation, different. That's comment. a blind spot. So that's yeah. that's well, excuse we'll use here. But um, also, Peter Costas said, talking about uh, Greg's stubbornness. Sometimes that stubbornness gives you commitment to hit a brilliant shot under pressure. Sometimes it makes you go for a shot you couldn't try, shouldn't try. I saw Greg as having that. Um, and he, Norm would also say, I wasn't 100% prepared for the responsibility of what I had in front of me. And I said to my kids after, whenever you're in an important situation like that, you have to be so strong that you can compartmentalize all the shit that goes on in your mind. That was one moment I didn't do it, and I prayed, paid the price deeply. Last little But nugget. I wouldn't change anything. Yeah. <laughs> That's where, like, the, I, I wouldn't, change, I wouldn't a thing change a thing kind of came out of nowhere. I think the stuff with the – I forget who you said he was talking to, but the stuff where everybody else is is trying to, like, convince you you know no no no, it's all good like you're, you're hitting yeah. good shots and you know deep down that you're not yeah. is like what you said waiting till 245 it's that times a million yes <laughs> like, um, that's such a good quote and such a good window last story i have here is if there was an opportunity for norman to drop his guard it would have been upon boarding his plane his plane for the ride back to florida instead seeing the assortment of red eyes staring back at him he held firm that he would be just fine uh, this is his agent, Williams, recalled. He came on and said, oh, come on, it's just a game. Think of all the money I've made from hitting a little white ball from A to B. Think of all the guys who work their tails off in factories. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to stay on this plane and drink it dry. And so we did. Uh, Williams continues. I'm sure underneath it all, he really wanted to lock himself in a room and mourn, but he wanted to make everyone else feel better. That's pretty great. 
Damning stat, sixth time that Norman shot 77 or higher in the final round of the Masters. <laughs> Whoa. I also didn't know this. Tied for the largest 54-hole lead lost in PGA Tour history. Six shots. No one has lost more than that. The other, uh, Dustin Johnson, 2017 WGC HSBC champions. Right. No one ever watches that, so it's fine. Uh, Spencer Levine, 2012 oh, Waste Management. God. Sergio at the 2005 Wachovia. Uh, Norman, Hal Sutton did it at the Anheuser-Busch, the 83 Anheuser-Busch Golf Classic. Gabe Brewer, 69 Danny Thomas Diplomat Classic. And Bobby Crookshank, 1928 Florida Open. That's a tough name. Crookshank. How big was Kyle Stanley's lead? It was only like three or four, going, uh, but he had expanded it to gotcha. seven. And yeah. Last two quotes I have. Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, of course. To the great champions, they put up plaques. To Greg Norman, they put up tombstones. Rick Riley. You know we're going to finish with a Rick Riley. <laughs> of course. Rick On, was, sorry, Rick is goaty yeah, in the yeah. mid-90s. Yeah, but this is where I think maybe we're losing him. In the late well, 90s. On the border. You decide oh, after this one. Fitting with the, uh, the pirate theme here, if we will. <laughs> Parr. On this same April 14th, another unsinkable ship on its way to certain glory listed, gurgled, and sank. The Titanic. Finn. Finn. Makes you think. Yeah. So that is the 96 collapse of Greg Norman. The Peter Costas calling the producer thing blew my mind. That's what I found like the first five minutes. I was like, okay, well, I'm definitely doing this one. Honorable mentions, I think, of course, John Vandeville, which we mentioned. We um, did. We talked through that one. I think my, mine was Duffner at in 2011. Spieth at the 15 or there's 16 a, Masters. There's a lot when you start going into the Phil game. at 06. Wingfoot. Of course. Wingfoot, right? There's a lot once you get out of the out of the majors category. I think yeah. Robert Garrigus tripling the last hole of Memphis that one year would have been a fun one to relive, maybe in another another podcast. I wanted to do David Toms, the year he won the Wachovia by oh, four. yeah. Quadding the last yes. hole. He had an eight-shot lead and made a quad, which was amazing. <laughs> uh, wanted to do that one. Rory at 2011 Masters, I think, could have been one. Ed Sneed, we thought oh, about. But it's too painful. We, we, kinda covered, Sneed, we, yeah. we covered that, I think, in the What If Guys, right? Yep. So, um, if Kenny, you've never heard the story of Ed Sneed, uh, go back to the What Kenny If Perry Guys Kenny Perry was also covered. Yes. That's a brutal collapse. Mm-hmm. That's so, a Masters. Oh, this, I, was, this was great. I don't know if I feel better or worse, but I'm, I'm very excited for majors to come back. I wanted to shout out, sorry, I wanted to shout out Patty Sheehan at the 1990 Women's U.S. Open, who, according to the World Golf Hall of Fame, took a nine-shot lead into the, uh, had a nine-shot lead at one point in the final round. I'm sure Patty I'm sure she appreciates, appreciates the shout-out <laughs> for you bringing that up. I believe there was a... Thank it, you, Big Randy. We could have talked, you know, came up in Refuge Trivia the other night, I.K. Kim, uh, missing oh my the, God. the two-footer, I believe it was, to yeah. her 18-inch putt or whatever, to... On the last hole to, to lose a major is a tough. That's a tough one. That's a yeah. quick meltdown to go back to your initial definition. I think Lorena Ochoa had a pretty epic uh, epic meltdown in one of the 2005. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I was looking at that one too. Um, yeah. yeah, there's some meltdowns out oh, there. Actually, one I also had on my list was uh, Nick Watney at the 2011 yeah, God, was PGA. That? Yes, when I think the same year that Dustin. No, ten. Uh, Whistling Straits. Whistling Straits, oh, that's right. Same Straits. one with Keimer and yes. DJ. So he took an eight-shot lead into the final round or something. I don't know if it was quite no, no, that no. big. It was, but it, it was big. <laughs> Sorry. No, it was, no it, was, it was significant, though. Yeah. And, and he, he just, ended up he shotting shot, like 83. Yeah, he shot 82, yeah. I think, or 83. Yeah, uh, God, I forgot about that one. We could have done a whole Dustin Johnson And section. there was another one on Aaron Badley I saw. Oakmont. At Oakmont. And he just got vaporized. Wadney had a three-shot lead going into the last round. What was it? Why was I thinking eight? Except in... I think he probably shot eight. Finished over. eight back or something. 
he shot 11 over on the or nine over on the last day so 81 that's not good (laughs) and just dj dj at 2010 us open pga 2015 chambers bay royal st george's yeah yeah that one's in there um spieth did we say yeah yeah. i know we said it but the other the other one he where he shot like the first round 66 or something i'm still convinced he won that year i think he did in 2015 Uh, no it was like 2017 maybe oh when will it won no that was that was was the actual collapse Seventeen. The one, the one he ended up coming back, but he that, fell just short. That was eighteen. That was Patrick Reed. Right. right. Eighteen. The second the round time. like collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. He made like a nine or no? Was that the year he made a nine? I think seventeen. He made a nine yeah, on number fifteen. Say. I'm yeah. St- I'm yeah. still convinced Jordan Smith won like three Masters. Yeah, he's yes. won at least three. I've, I've had to look that up more than once. But how many? How many does he have? Crazy. Just the one. Uh, I thought about Tom Watson too, at the British. But that's yeah. hard to say. It's a collapse. He just kind of ran out of gas as a. Couldn't get hay. (laughs) The horses were running, man. You know, he didn't. He didn't pace himself. (laughs) Rode hard and put away wet. Yeah, for real. Uh, That was that that was was heartbreaking. It's too sick. One that was a tough scene. Yeah. Well, I think we can we can wrap this uh, just with a just a tribute to all of our uh, all of our all of our collapses. Play us out, so many generations. But thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you guys again soon. Today. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything.